Greetings, ladies and mentalgents, and welcome to the weekly roundup of Tales, Tales from Outer space. space. Taken from TFOS 842 to 855 from the YouTube channel. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 842. Story number one Endangered, written by Digital 33206. I am Gar-El, one of the last few of my species. I write these thoughts so that others may learn them and understand my reasoning. My species was quite fortunate in some ways. We lived comparatively to other sentient beings long and full lives. I myself would be reaching 2,218 next year. Masters of our bodies, we could use immense strength and equipped with our forearms, apply that strength in many ways. Our shell protected us from most injuries and made us walking tanks, as my human friends like to joke. We have our weaknesses or downsides, chief amongst them being our low reproductive cycle. At our apogee, we counted some seven million of our kind in the universe. As of this writing, Surely less than 10,000 remain. My human friends have tried to defend us, but to no avail. This enemy is stronger than them, more cunning and devious. It strikes from the shadow and eludes their grasp. Diplomacy has failed and violence has only managed to stem the losses temporarily. The humans have built large domes where they have recreated the habitats of our home world for our relocation. They stand guard outside with the fleets protecting us. My child is one of those living in such a habitat. Many see them as nothing more than cages, however, and opt to live free, no matter the risks. Some get kidnapped right off the streets into unmarked vehicles, Others are abducted while in transit to other worlds. More species have perished thus far or have had low populations that can only be considered endangered. The humans are doing what they can, but even if the enemy were defeated today, it would take generations to recover what was lost. It is the duality of humans that makes them so interesting. For every great act of compassion, Another human may commit an act of such wanton cruelty as to make the soul cry. Indeed, they cannot fight their nature. Their hunger, it drives them. Unlike other species, it is always present. Humans always look for and think of their next meal, sometimes planning it days in advance. Even skipping meals for a few hours easily changes their mood, becoming easily irritated. It appears I may have misled you, dear reader. Perhaps I unconsciously did not want you to judge the humans too harshly. They are my friends, after all. Well, some of them. Let me elaborate. Other species also eat. One must eat to survive. The difference is in the act and the mental side of it. I subsist on sap and the great tree, as do most others of my species. I consume the sap before resting for the day. It is a trivial action born of necessity. The Darlan, for example, gorge themselves once every three months, consuming their weight in plant matter. Humans, though, 
are the only ones who eat for pleasure. It is a fringe element of the human species that treats us like cattle. Raiders and criminals take our kind back to their homeworld to serve as exotic meals. The prices that wealthy humans pay for these delicacies are astronomical, enough to make an average human wealthy beyond measure. There are also other outlandish claims. That eating a dalon prevents cancer, numshian skin ground into powder, granting great strength, and a myriad of other superstitious nonsense. The reasonable humans make laws and try to bring the law to the criminal humans. Obviously, too many this feels that I can orchestrate to, to deflect blame. One such species, the Banthi, advocated for war, sending its fleet against the humans. For what the humans lacked technologically, they made up for numbers. With a total population of 23 billion on four worlds, they are 98% of the galaxy's sapient population. Like a devouring swarm, they swept away the Banthi until none fought any longer. It was with reluctance that they did so, however. As much as they understood why war was waged against them, they could not lie down take it. I believe they should cover most of it, as I await my fate in this refrigerator, as the humans call it. I think of my child. It was a hard decision, but I believe it to be logical. Instead of living out my days in a cage or getting eventually captured, I have willingly sold myself. I will be boiled alive, apparently, as the taste of my meat is best preserved that way. Then my shell will be cracked, and I will be served. What better way to deprive the raiders of their smiles? The wealth I receive from the sale of myself will go towards creating a fund to protect my species. The humans have talked much about helping conserve what is left of the galaxy's species, and have enacted laws to create funds for this. However, after talking with some of my human friends and reading a bit of their history, such projects tend to not live longer than a generation. How soon the Indian reservations' contracts were changed or funding cut from wildlife preservations with the dawn of a new government. We must take the matter into our own hands. Now that I've had time to reflect, perhaps I should amend our species' weakness to include delicious. It was what spelt our demise, after all. End of story. Story number two, Unforgiving, written by It Was Then That. Extinction level event, the virologists called it. A pandemic that spread through the world's population silently, without symptoms or death, until all but the most isolated have become carriers of a virus written specifically for us. It struck in one orchestrated wave that brought our lives to a halt and our civilization to its knees in a single day. Virologists believe that the virus lay dormant for the last three months, maximizing the infection rate before striking us down. It was supposed to end us, but we, as a species, refused to die. We endured. Many did die. Almost half our population. The most at risk, the elderly, the sick, and our children. No child under ten years of age survived. In the ensuing chaos, many more, young and old, die through desperation and greed. 
Borders were eroded, and the idea of countries became null and void as governments collapsed and the rule of law disappeared. Some regions of the world were harder hit than others, and their peoples and cultures faded into dust. Militaries that most remained took over. They established farmland bases and collected the useful from amongst the local populations and, in time, became city-states that reintroduced a form of society. Communication between city-states around the world using worn but functional satellites enabled a form of global alliance, a shadow of that which had once existed. The idea of sovereign countries was reintroduced, but there were hundreds now. Distrust was high. No one knew who had released the virus, but it seemed obvious that it had been manufactured. Tensions ran hot in those first fifty years as each country vied to get back to the levels of technology known before the pandemic as fast as possible, to ensure their survival against every other country. Border standoffs and clashes became more regular, but so did trade where possible. Whether we could have lasted in that state, I do not know. It seemed obvious that another pandemic or summer deploying nukes would be the end of us. Their mistake was coming to finish the job. We might have torn ourselves apart if they had left us alone. But who can understand the alien mind? Like the virus they sent against us, they came in one enormous crushing wave. Ships tearing through the atmosphere, setting fire to the sky and sending waves of sound crashing into the ground. Our cities, those parts above ground, were destroyed and our populations once again decimated. They drove us into hiding, fighting a guerrilla war on our own turf with no moral or ethical reason to hold back. They united us. Satellites gone, we communicated through shortwave, broadcast stations always on the move so as to not reveal the population centers they remained, though they still found them and put them to flame. Radio broadcasts of unity and shared hatred of the invaders kept hope going where it should have long perished. Our numbers fell. At first they stayed up and high, strafing the land from their ships, cowards and tacticians both. Little could touch them, but we found patterns in their movements, and in the early days when we still had missile batteries, we managed to take down a handful. Eventually... They landed, no doubt thinking us all but gone, their scan showing no large human groups anymore. Those few of us that remained hid and waited as they began to unload their colonists and take our home from us. Deep underground, in our last bastions, we collected the data that we could collect on the large, ugly bastards who had stolen our world. Raiding parties returned with tech while scouts observed their cities from afar giving us insight into the structures and their society. We were alone now. All communities cut off from one another, with no way to know if we were the last survivors. We didn't care. All we wanted was to inflict an end upon our enemy. The breakthrough came when we finally understood their tech. Our revenge came when we armed ourselves with their weapons and clothed ourselves in their armor. We upgraded infantry spec until each of us was a tank. There was no more than a thousand capable of fighting. 
but it was more than enough. With desperation and fire in our souls, we prepared. We planned for years down to the last detail. And we attacked. No mercy was shown. We killed their old, their young, leveled the city before they knew what was happening. They fought back and they died. We interfaced with their ships and sent them on suicide runs, flying headlong into other craft until they exploded in the skies. We frightened them with our lust for their deaths, a mirror of what was done to us. They pulled back after the first fight, our first winner, no doubt strategizing for the new threat. We used that time to infiltrate their systems, to commandeer every vehicle we could find, and before they were ready, we came for them. Hell rained from the skies and hell rained on the ground as we came for them. City after city, falling in rivers of fell grey blood. As each conquest came, we found more of our brethren. Our people crawling out from the cracks to don our suits of war and take up the fight. On every continent, we found survivors. And in each of them... We felt the rage and gave it release. Five years we fought, until none of them were left. Five years of devastation that ravaged our world. Saw our rainforest burned and species gone, never to return. We left a rear guard of 10,000 fighters and their families. Left them to pick up the pieces and protect our world. To regrow the earth. The rest of us, 100,000 strong, we went into the ink sky and pointed our ships at the enemy. We had star maps of their worlds, and we had a hatred that would not die. We went to the stars. We went and we burned. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 843 a Funeral for a Human, written by Chain Blue The TFS Arizona hung motionless in the Lagrange point between Earth and Sol. I stood in the bunkroom that I shared with three human junior officers. I was amongst the first of my people to rotate onto a human warship since our alliance was forged. I was the first exchanged officer ever for the Arizona. It had been less than three months since I came on board during the maintenance cycle, while she was moored in the lunar shipyard. I was to learn the ship and how to the crew operated, and the nuances of the mostly human crew as we readied her for service. They say, if you want to make the fates laugh, make a plan. I looked into the mirror and tried to lay flat what little remained of my singed facial fur. It was no use. It had been burned down to nearly the skin. Resigned to looking like a hydro horror, back lying too close to a power relay, I tried to finish buttoning my dress uniform. My clumsy, new prosthetic hand balked at the task, and my remaining original hand trembled uncooperatively. Having only just been released from recovery, I had yet to do the physical therapy that would cement its connection to my nervous system. The thin gold kintsugi thread on the right sleeve where my organic parts joined my prosthetic contrasted with the vanta black fabric that glinted at me as I glared contemplatively at my artificial arm. 
Lieutenant Rhymes saw my groaning frustration and stood from where he sat on his bunk and stepped to my side. His aura was dark blue with ripples of quicksilver. May I assist you, Mr. Shiftick? he asked quietly. I nodded in the human gesture that could mean many things, but in this case was an affirmative response. I did not trust my voice. Moments after my uniform was finally in order, all of our comms rang out. The captain's voice was clear and calm and as strong as the armor on the hull. She called, All hands! Bury the dead! I walked through the mostly empty corridors. The ship was eerily quiet. Memories forced their way into my mind as I walked. This boy did not deserve this fate. I pressed back sorrow with rage and dearly wishing again for the cold numbness that I had felt while I was in sickbay recovering. It was not long a walk, and soon the second to last hatch before the main hangar opened before me. Master Chief Petty Officer Claude Riley stood waiting for me, also in full dress uniform. I almost didn't recognize him. I had never seen his stout form in any clothing except lubricant-stained grey technician coveralls, looking at all the universe like a slightly annoyed Terran bear. His usual red aura danced flame-like around him, trying to hide the vibrant nature tones nearer his skin. It was a dead giveaway. Another memory clawed its way to the front of my mind. No, I had seen him red coveralls not long ago. I found myself reliving the memory in the starts and stops of motion. I was in a metal deck of an engineering access compartment. It was full with sickly green smoke that burned eyes and twisted my lungs into spasms. Alarms were blaring, but I more felt them than heard them. The explosion had blunted my hearing and all sounds were muffled gusts. My arm hurt and I tried to look at it, but it wasn't there. Where is it? I thought, dumbfounded. It is supposed to be here, and it's not. Pink blood spurted from my mid-forearm in time with my heartbeats. I knew I should be doing something, but all my brain would tell me was that we weren't finished with the engine couldn't pump replacement. Strong hands picked me up and bodily hurled me through the smoke-filled air and out of a quickly closing emergency door. I landed in a heap next to Master Chief Riley, who lying on his back on the corridor deck. Dozens of pieces of metal protruding from his body, from his face, down past his knees. Deep, red, human blood flowed freely onto the deck. Then the world wavered into emptiness. It would be a full day before I regained consciousness and learned of the simultaneous surprise attack by the Urungintu on our shipyard and twelve others. Master Chief Riley was gripping my shoulder with his thick, stubby fingers and shaking me gently. Sir, are you with me? He inquired. My eyes focused on his. One was dark blue like the ocean before a storm, and the other was a metallic grey and gentle green glow of an artificial replacement. His face a map of new thin pink scars. Instead of answering him, I countered. Master Chief, what are you doing out of recovery? When I left, I heard Dr. Puranan telling you you still had three days left before you could leave. 
Master Chief Riley growled in a voice that reminded me of rocks grating together, and simply stated, We disagreed. The man had a talent for brevity. We walked in silence into the hangar bay and gathered with the rest of the honor platoon. The hangar door was open to space with a barrier field keeping the atmosphere in place. Sol hung brightly in the distance. Our escort ships and point defense drones kept stations in spherical formation around us. Those aft and in our view had all of their hull lights on. The aft were altering formation to create a cylinder of open space leading directly to the home star. There were seven marines lined up near the stand where the three-meter-long railgun slug lay perched. They were holding ancient-looking rifles with actual wooden parts. The chaplain and the exo stood slightly to the side, having a quiet discussion. The rest of the honor guard and I formed two loose rows facing the railgun slug. The captain entered and appeared to be escorting two humans I'd never seen before. It was an older human male and female. They wore older-style fleet uniforms. The male looked to be of average height, and his shoulders were slightly stooped with age. His master chief's uniform jacket was taut across his slightly extended midsection. His shorn head was covered in scars, as was his wrinkled face. The burden of a reluctant warrior's pain weighed upon him. His aura was so dim that it appeared as faded grey fog. It was a burden he carried willingly to spare others its weight. I read his ribbons and medals. My eyes widened when I finally noticed the sizable blue band of cloth that wrapped around his neck and that had a bronze-colored inverted star hanging from it. This man's sacrifices would have won him the title of a war clan leader three times over in my own system. I forced my gaze to the human female. She wore a dark green uniform of a fleet marine chief master sergeant. She was slender and tall, taller than the male. She had a short cropped grey hair the colour of steel. Her aura clung closely to her, but whispered that she had a grace of a dancer and a quiet fortitude of her. Well, an elder Terran marine. She had so many Kintsugi threads on her uniform that I wondered how many original parts had left. No wonder humans had a reputation for sometimes just refusing to die out of sheer obstinance. And I looked at her ribbons and medals and saw a golden eagle clutching a sword and a shield in two-clawed grip. The human word, Valkyrie, appeared in my mind. That isn't a human female, I thought. That is an epic war song in the form of one. This was the last face many a warrior saw before they passed into the next world. Who are they, I thought. I had never seen them on board the ship before. I didn't think guests were allowed, I whispered to Master Chief Riley. He softly growled in a way of explanation. They are his parents. Guess that someone high up owed at least one of them a debt that couldn't be ignored. Before I could ponder on that, the Exo's sharp command brought us all to order. The main entry door opened and six crewmen marched into the hangar in perfect unison. 
the sound of their polished shoes echoing over the muted thrum of the main reactor. The middle two crewmen held the simple carrier in the two-handed grip. Suspended between them was a polished steel urn. They marched over to the railgun snug. The lead bearer called a halt. The chaplain removed the urn from the carrier and held it as the bearers took position there on each side of the snug and marked time until called to face the railgun snug and halt once more. Once they were in position, the chaplain stepped up to the snug and placed the urn into the open compartment on an otherwise solid piece of hyperdense metal. A mechanism word as an unseen device sealed the small hatch. I glanced over to the parents standing with the captain. I saw the female's aura flare into a vibrant green of life, then warped into a riot of chaotic storm. In the abyss of the hangar silence, I caught the whispered words. My little boy. She buried her face into the male's shoulder, and they held each other. Grief and pain flowing in great, pulsing waves from them as the bearers precisely draped a Terran fleet flag over the railgun slug. The captain stepped between us then. Her face and body dared anyone to look directly at the pair. Her silent vigil continued until the parents once more stood apart, but with hands firmly clasped. The exo called parade rest. The captain stepped away from the parents and began to speak to us all. We gather here to lay rest apprentice seaman John Ward Etheridge Jr. He displayed courage and fortitude that exemplifies at the best of the fleet and the best of humanity. When chaos and fire came to him, he answered with selflessness and honor. When this ship, our ship, and his brothers and sisters were attacked. He stepped into the breach and delivered them unto safety. Though grievously wounded, he carried not one, but two of his brothers to safety. He went back into the hellish flame and brought forth his sister. Finally, he went back one final time. And with their escape closing, his final act was to summon all that remained of his strength and deliver one final brother to salvation. No words that I can say, no honors that we can bestow, can ever be enough to balance the scales. We stand here today in his debt, because of him four families of mothers and fathers, of husbands and wives, of brothers and sisters and children, still have their loved ones in this world with them. Our debt can only be paid when we do everything in our power to stand between those we love and those who would do them harm and ensure that no more tears need be shed. I chanced a glance at the parents. Their auras hurt. They had abandoned all vestiges of military decorum. They held each other, and again as sobs racked their bodies, hot tears flowed from my own eyes as I patted onto the deck. I quickly looked away. I tried and failed to tame my mind and blunt my aura sense. 
I focused on the far bulkhead and concentrated with all my will to stay standing upright. I followed along robotically as the exo called for a salute, then a long silence, when men of bowed heads rained down more tears. Another command, and the seven marines fired their ancient chemical propellant rifles in unison. They repeated this twice more. The service became a blur in time. I remember a horn playing a mournful song, but I cannot recall the notes. I remember a folded flag being presented to the parents, but I do not recall leaving the slug. I remember the starboard aft railgun being manually loaded, but I do not recall how the 5,000 kilogram monolith was moved to the breach. I remember the shudder as the recoil of the big gun overwhelmed the compensators, but I do not recall the command to fire. I remember the blue streak of Tracer as the remains of seamen Etheridge raced towards Sol, but I do not recall ever seeing the light fade. I remember looking once more at the creators of my savior with my full senses having brought to my knees by the sheer anguish they projected. I do not possess any memory of the bone-chilling funeral howl that I am told that I loosed upon the hangar. I am forever grateful that the parents felt that it was a show of deep and raw emotion by someone that their son's life had touched instead of a disrespectful breach of conduct. His mother sent actual paper letters to all present that day, thanking us for honoring her child and charging us with making his sacrifice into a legacy. My letter was handwritten and in my native language. I sealed that letter in a protective barrier. Even today, it remains inside my pocket of my uniform. My last solid memory of that day was of Master Chief Petty Officer Claude Riley pulling me up to my feet and saying, Come on, we're gonna get roaring drunk. When we wake up tomorrow, we're gonna burn every last year and two son of a bitch in the universe to ash. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 844 Story number one. Humans are weird. Pop-ups. Written by Betty Adams. The bright noonday sun shone down on the recreation area. Travel streams wandered lazily around the various surfaces before gathering in a central pool. The water sparkled with artificial cleanliness as it moved and Seven Flap wrinkled his nose flaps in irritation at the near blinding light it reflected. He supposed the health regulations required sterile water, but it was so clearly unnatural that it set his sensory haunts tingling. He gave the horns an idle rub with one wing hook as he used the other to position the meal orb better on his teeth. The orb was a positive delight compared to the usual half-formed buds they got in their home station. It tasted tree-grown. No matter what the nutritional said about the chemical content, he always could taste the difference between the tree and vat-grown batches. He idly rotated the orb, licking up the outer layer as the fluid beaded on the side. His attention was drawn to a pair of humans who appeared to be sneaking across the recreation yard. The sight of a sneaking human was 
always entertaining to watch. The behemoth shouldn't have any chance of stealth, and yet a well-trained human could move below the ambient sound threshold with surprising ease. He grinned as he listened to their whispered conversation. They were clearly not well-trained. The humans were crouched down below the ridge on one of the artificial hills. They were clearly not bothering to hide themselves from anyone at elevation, so that the object of their focus must be fed it up. There were no shatar on the grounds at the moment, and the gathering was so oblivious to this kind of sunlight that there would be no reason to sneak around them. Seventh Flap followed their trajectory for a moment and then followed it out. As he had expected, there was a pair of undulates ambling along the edge of the stream on the other side of the ridge from the humans. Adding the vectors made it clear that the humans intended to intercept them where the long hill ended. Seven Flap gave his meal orb another lick, and the taste came up empty. He grunted and tucked the empty orb into his carry pouch. He took to wing and caught the thermal that allowed him to perch on a much better view of the Vector meat. The humans had paused and pulled something out of the sack. They looked like helmets of some sort. They had clearly been modified to resemble a gaping maw of some predatory species. The humans donned the helmets and dropped down, resting in their hands on the ground. Seventh Flap stared at an astonishment. The literature on humans and everything that he'd personally seen indicated that they were strictly bipedal. But these two were scrambling along as easily as the gathering. They had altered their vectors several times by this point, and he was beginning to suspect that he was wrong about their intended destination. But they increased their horizontal speed and reached the end of the hill, several body lengths ahead of the undulated. There, the humans stopped and crouched in a predatory manner. Seventh Flap felt a prickle of unease run across his horns. While he didn't know any of the individuals involved, he was fairly certain that the humans bore the undulates no ill will. However, that was a very predatory pose. He shook out his horn and firmly reminded himself that if a human wanted to harm an undulate, they hardly needed to sneak up on them to do it. Still, he watched closer. The undulates rounded the curb and the hill and the humans bounced. That is to say, they both pounced about three wings forward, raised their hands over their heads, and emitted a low, rumbling sound. The undulates idly turned to the humans and gave happy sort of wiggle greeting. The humans stood there uncertainly and finally returned the gesture with a wave. The darker undulate lifted a few appendages curiously. Is this a normal greeting for your subculture, human acquaintance Smythe? the undulate asked. I have not seen one like it before. Um, no, the human replied in surprised tone. Well, thank you for sharing a rare greeting with us, the angelate replied. My colleague regrets that she cannot converse with you, but she has not yet learned English. No probs, the human reassured them. Have fun on your amble. After a few more cursory exchanges, the angelates did indeed continue on. The humans stood there for a few moments longer before taking off in a modified helmets and exchanging confused glances. Seventh Flap was feeling generous now that he had a full belly and decided to relieve the confusion. He took to wing and came up behind them, making sure to stay in the overlap of the blind spots. He went into a glide just outside of the hearing and dove. The humans were caught completely unaware 
as he latched onto the center one's back. The human's response was more than satisfactory. Seventh Flap wasn't aware that grown human males could generate sounds that high in register. The reaction, however, was short-lived, and the scream quickly turned to laughter. Who are you? demanded the other human. I am Seventh Flap, he replied, and I thought I'd answer your question. My question is that, the human he was clinging to asked. Why you failed to get a jump reaction out of the undulates? Seventh Flap explained as he detached and circled them until one held out a hand for him to perch on. Yeah, the human who had landed on replied. Why was that? Did they see us coming? No, Seventh Flap replied. Your stealth was more than sufficient for an undulate. Then why? the human asked with a wave in the direction of the still ambling undulates. There are no predator species on their planet, Seventh Flap explained, pulling his face into a smug grin. They have no jump-scare reflex. I must say that it would be nice to have people that we can really play with on base now. He took off and let them ponder that. As he flew out of hearing range, he heard one human say to the other, What uh, do we just get ourselves into? End of story. Story number two. Allergies, written by Rosie013. Richard sneezed for the millionth time in the close confines of his helmet. He hated having allergies. It was a straw that broke the camel's back, the crowning misery on an already difficult quest. When he had set out on his loyal stallion, gleaming plate armor reflecting the morning sun as the crowds of peasants cheered his passing through the western gate, towards the distant mountains, just like the bards sang about. Then the hardships came quick and fast. His beloved horse was dead, his lance discarded after being splintered and broken, his armor was dented and showed signs of hasty repair. Even his magnificent sword was notched along its length with heavy use. And now he couldn't stop sneezing, ruining what was probably his last advantage, surprise and stealth. But Richard was not going to turn back now. He had an oath to uphold, an oath to defend his father's kingdom from any and all threats. The dragon that had been snatching cattle was no exception. Still sneezing, he cautiously advanced into the mountainous lair. Short, sharp sounds echoed down the cave entrance, roused the mighty dragon from its shallow slumber. Not orcs again! No, orcs made much deeper sounds, even when they were trying to be sneaky. Curious, the dragon went to investigate. Rounding the corner, he came across the intruder. He was alone, human. Recoiling in disgust, the dragon hurriedly pushed past and took to the skies outside. He would have to migrate to one of his other caves until the vermin moved along. Unlike others of his kind, he did not view humans as a convenient snack. For some other reason, eating them made his face swell and his stomach moan in agony. He hated having allergies. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 845. Story number one. The Gatekeepers of God. Written by the Stabby Brent. Look up the skies, children. See the galaxy 
the Milky Way. Do you remember why we call it that? Yes, that's right. It's the name mankind gave our galaxy, and we use it to honor them. That way, in the brightest cluster, that's the center of the galaxy. That is where heaven is found. Yes, that's man's name as well. You'll find we use a lot of their names. Mankind is important to us, to every species. Why? Well, all right. I suppose you are old enough to know now. Eons ago, when the galaxy was young, the great nine arose in distant corners of the cosmos, and each began to forge an empire for themselves. No, I don't know their names, but this was so long ago their names no longer matter. Some were quiet, insular people, others violent conquerors who enslaved and exterminated lesser races. One by one, they came upon each other, and their wars were brief, yet savage enough for them all to understand the terrible cost continued conflict would bring. Thus, one by one, they became unified. As they grew and explored, they came to realize that they were not the first races to arise in the galaxy. Indeed, as they journeyed inwards towards the core, they found more and more evidence of long-dead races in the old systems. Little things, ships or remote outposts that had been forgotten for time unfathomable. Nine such extinct races they found, all having perished in a comparable space of time. In the galactic core, they found nine more. These species had come to power at the very birthing of the universe. Yet they were gone. At last, the nine reached the center of the galaxy to look upon the supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A with their own eyes. Within that great void they beheld God, and God beheld them, and he was displeased at what he saw. You have chosen the path of a coward, God told them. You tested each other. When it was clear that victory demanded sacrifice, you chose mutual surrender. Long have I waited, as I have in ages gone to see what you would make of yourselves, to see, at last, if my creation could birth a worthy species. I see again, it has not. The nine flew away in a panic, and in their terror they begged God for a chance to redeem themselves. The war began immediately, blind and indiscriminate. All that they had built together, all their works and their wonders, the wonders of their empires and the knowledge of millennia was all turned to the goal of mutual annihilation, or eradicated in a holocaust that burned the galaxy from end to end. There is no way for me to convey the scale of death in those grim days, or your mind would make the numbers unreal. I could say billions died every second for a billion seconds, but I see even that is beyond your grasp. Worse, that is but a fraction of the true cost of life. And 
it was not enough. One by one, the nine perished, reduced to isolated remnants that hid behind whatever meager defenses their home worlds could muster. Some were lost altogether, though it is possible they simply regressed so far they no longer remember the great stellar nation they once were. None of them, save one, believed that they had a future. All save one prepared for God to drive them into extinction and leave the galaxy clear for a new nine to rise. It was then that mankind joined the fray. They had played at weakness, but only so that they could bide their time and build their fleets and ready their weapons. They had lost in the end times, all races did, but theirs was a calculated sacrifice. A quadrillion times a quadrillion innocent men were left to die so that the rest might live and complete the great work. The sacrifice was worth it in the eyes of man, for as God passed in his grand unmaking, mankind threw itself upon him. The first strike was done by the RKMs, missiles a hundred kilometers long that shrieked through the galaxy at near speed of light. They had God with enough force to split open a planet. Many did, in fact. For they had been launched lifetimes ago to obliterate worlds and implode suns that might shield God from the fury of man. Then came the Nova bombs, stolen suns on the brink of collapse that were triggered to supernova, blasting their colossal energies into the face of God. The black holes they left behind were weapons in their own right, used to fuel planet-sized energy weapons that seared our creator with unrelenting fury. Next was the Great Fleet. Ten thousand solar systems had been unmade to provide the raw materials for the Armada. Sixty generations had born, trained, bred, and died with no purpose other than to prepare for this moment. The great flaring of their breaking engines created a solar wind that stripped the corona off of suns a hundred light years away. The flash of their opening salvo was seen from the outer room. God struck back. From his lightless fortress, he swept out beams of energy that reduced billions of men to atoms. His incorporeal hands reached out and caused stars to implode irradiating entire armadas. The great siege guns of mankind melted themselves in an effort to overcome him, and he, in turn, sundered the ones that had the fortune to endure. For fifty years the war raged, fifty unceasing years without a moment's peace. The supply convoys ran night and day, entire cultures, entire species given over to the task of providing the ordnance mankind required to continue their onslaught. RKMs were built, accelerated and detonated, larger and faster each time. Humanity bent the laws of reality itself to allow asteroid-sized continents to exceed the maximum speed of light and crush into the creator with such an apocalyptic fury that mankind was getting more of their own through collateral damage than God was by design. 
Yet not once did they relent, nor even withdraw a single inch. By the end, the very concept of night had become alien to us, for the fury of war lit every planet in the Milky Way with a terrible brilliance. At an unknowable cost, mankind had begun to gain ground, and as God felt doubt for the first time, the last great superweapon of mankind arrived in the field, Battleship Sol. There has been no other weapon like it before or since. You will laugh when I describe her, but know that what I say is true. Sol was once a star system, the home star system of mankind. The star had been harnessed and enhanced to a great engine. Her worlds became gun turrets, harnessing and focusing the energies that we have no words to describe. Nothing else in the armories of man, not her hawking cannons, not the spatial fortresses, nor even the unmaker fleet, could rival the awesome fury that was Saul. It was then that God realized the truth. Mankind had looked upon their creator and found him unworthy. With a cataclysmic detonation, Battleship Sol fired its cannons and smote Sagittarius A from reality itself. In its place now lies a crater in reality, a hole to non-existence. Over that hole, mankind built heaven. A solid ring of weapon systems pointing inwards, ready to unleash hell again should our creator ever return. They remained there still. Mankind gave itself over to a singular purpose. To be our angels. The core is their domain now. Any ship that tries to enter will be turned back. Any foolish enough to refuse will be destroyed. And all agree it is right that mankind do so. Now turn, my child. Turn and look towards the rim. See those lights? Those are not stars, but shining engines of warships of man. Having killed God, man wondered whether there were other gods, each lurking within the heart of their own galaxy, each playing their games with other races. Mankind became convinced that sooner, or later, one of these gods would learn of their militant atheism and seek to destroy us. They call themselves devils, guardians of the cold dark. They watch and wait, eyes and weapons trained on the Stygian void, waiting for whatever comes from the Chthonic depths. Ah, I see I have scared you. You no need to fear, child. Go now, go to your bed and sleep soundly, knowing that you are watched and loved by your parents and by the angels of mankind, as they have watched us for a million generations and shall watch us for a million more. The darkness holds no terrors for you, my precious one, not as long as man endures. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 846 Ishmael, written by Yashur, I'm not a robot. 
The mining ship Ishma was deep in system 12.436.8045, breaking rocks. The system was an empty one, with the remains of a destroyed planet sitting there for the taking. The captain watched his men fill the holds, building new additions to his ship as needed. Tell the men that we're ready to head port. We might be running slow with this to carry, but uh, I doubt you'll mind that. His crew grinned, a landfall soon and pockets full. They could enjoy the trip up. He called the drones and began preparing to make the jump to clear space. Running the numbers, three said. Nav, take us to the edge of the system. I want to be as far as I can outside the gravity well before we jump. He hit the comms. Stand down, lads. We're cruising to the edge of the system before we jump. Any complaints can go to the lads that filled the cargo till they can barely walk. Beers in the fridge. The content crew approached the edge of the system until his comms officer got up from his station and went to whisper into the ear of the nav officer. The two looked at each other and was a sudden scrabble on the screen. Whatever the query, it ended with a nod. The comms officer was an old hand, keeping the lines open to the galaxy without a flicker of emotion. Sunstorm, pirates, it didn't move him or his gear. He continued his tour and put his hands on the science officer and leaned in. Whatever was said to the science officer leaned back and looked at the nap only to receive a nod. She turned to the console and began to check what she was being told. She stopped and nodded at the comms officer. The comms officer walked to the captain's station. He saluted formally. Sir, we are in first contact situation. I have received a signal confirmed by two officers of the bridge. I recommend we stand for briefing. The captain inhaled sharply and then let it out slowly. He first contact. All crew stand by. Nav put us in a stationary orbit. Science, I want to report as soon as possible. He nodded to the officer in front of him. Inform the XCC that we are standing down for the first contact and then meet me in my quarters. The bridge officers assembled in front of his screen and the captain looked around. Where's Bart? This first officer piped up. He's trying to slow down a trillion tons of ore that we were dragging behind us. I could hear the cursing from two decks away, the captain grunted. Well, this isn't really an engineering problem. What do we know? The comms officer began. I picked this up as we got close to the edge of the system. It's organic, nowhere near our usual frequencies. Definitely sentient, but no idea beyond that. It's a call for help. Our translators batched it together from about 60 other known languages, but it's still a mess. Some of those were insecta, some of them were wet worlds. Whatever it is, it's close. He played the recording, a deep whistling that he had interpreted. JJ, you picked them up on the scanners. Any ideas? The nav officer switched the view on the screen. It's only a few hours out and heading this way. All I can tell you is that it is big and doesn't match any records we have for Zeno ships. I can't even tell you how it's moving. It is within range right now if you wanted to go meet it. The captain nodded. And sights. Anything that you can tell us? She shook her head. Not really. Not until we're within range of my scanners. I can tell you that my lab will be ready. The captain sighed. All right, get the crew ready. We could be here for a while. I'll start the official record. You can all add to it as we figure this out. Remind the men that we all get a bonus for this, and get them a beer when they get off duty. 
Tell the engineer that I'll see him at his convenience. The officers grinned at that one. Out in the dark, running for her life while bleeding across the system, she tried to make it home. She called and called, hoping that her packmates would hear her. The pain was blinding her, and she saw nothing of the human ship sitting in her way. She also missed seeing the train of all stretching out behind it, tearing through the system. She slammed hard into the crates, ripping her fields apart with the impact. She felt the universe press on her in a way that she hadn't experienced since she'd been a child in her mother's wake. Then it went dark as her mind fled, as a million tons of ore flew loose from the field and swung towards the sun. The loudest sound in the system was the howl of outrage from an engineer. On the bridge was a mix of anxiety and outrage. The Xeno had ignored all efforts to communicate, obviously deeply damaged or having lost its comms. It had been too late to try and avoid the accident by the time it was clear that something was badly wrong. The captain swore and crumpled up the XCC guidelines that he was supposed to follow. Fuck all use now, he turned to his staff. Move us over there and get as many scans as possible. Get the engineer up here and I'll see if we can collect up our cargo before it burns. The science officer looked up. Captain, that is not a ship. It's nearly entirely organic and it's, um... She paused. She looked back down at the scans. Sir, it's bleeding. The captain went to make a difficult call to the XCC. This is Captain Benton and the mining ship Ishmael. First contact situation at 12.436.8045. I need a xenobiologist you can find that can explain how a creature the size of a bloody carrier just smashed into my cargo. I'm sending you scans. He ended the call. Rick knows when Earth would want him to do next. He called the science officer. Robin, can you explain to me what your drones are reporting? None of it makes any sense to me. She looked at her reports, most of which were stuff of fantasy. Sir, it doesn't make any sense to me either. It's like the universe is breaking with us. We have no record of organic life in open space. None. Nothing that it could feed on or evolve from. It's like finding a dragon sitting on a hoard of gold in your kitchen. If I had to speculate, I'd say that this is created. Someone, somewhere, thought that this would be real and had the technology to make it happen. She went thoughtful for a moment. Sir, I need the engineer to look at this. Maybe he's got something to add. The captain decided to save some time and went down to the engineering department. As expected, Bart was elbow deep in transporters and fuel generators. He pulled up a chair and waited for his presence to register. Despite appearances, he trusted Bart to be well aware that he was there, just preferred to finish whatever oddness that he was currently inflicting on the ship. Finally... He put down his tools and nodded to the captain. I read the reports. It's not my field. Better to leave it to Earth. I'm sure they have a dozen ships on the way. He waved at the field generators. I've secured most of the cargo, but I can't recover the stuff we lost. That creature hit hard and sent it sunward at a truly impressive speed. The captain stood up. Frankly, I don't care about the ore. We seem to have half killed a unicorn, and we need to help it. I want you working with Robin. Figure out how. I think your drones are better suited for work on something of the scale, and I don't do anyone any good waiting for Earth to finally get you, unless you want to watch the galaxy's biggest autopsy. Am I clear? Bart waved a hand in a vague engineering salute. 
the light catching the iron ring on his hand. Hey, Captain, I'll get to work on it. Best if the beastie doesn't die out there. Permission to leave the ship. Gonna need to get a lot closer to judge the damage. The scout ship Quirkuch was tiny and not very comfortable for two people. Mostly, they just used it if they wanted to check out the surface of an asteroid before ripping it apart. And now the ship was carrying every scanner that the engineer and science officer could make mobile. Robin looked at the engineer. She really didn't know the man at all. He rarely spoke about anything other than the ship. She knew he liked Earth's whiskey and apparently hated shaving and exercise. But what are we looking at? I'm pretty sure someone built this, at least at the beginning. Maybe they can breed. Bart grinned at her. If someone built this, then I want to know how they did it. Can you imagine what we could do with that technology? I mean, besides putting the captain out of work. Then they came into visual range of the creature, and both went silent. Robin swore softly. Frack! Bart looked across and nodded silently. The creature was a globe, a perfect sphere of grey scale skin. Sunlight broke through its shields, distorting the colors until they looked like the rainbow made of smoke. It was a mountain, three times the size of the Ishmael and spinning slowly in space surrounded only by the shattered ore that had become trapped in its fields. Bart picked up the comms and called back to the ship. Now you're seeing this. As he spoke, the ripples creased the skin and the creature like ocean waves and twisted in place. His comms were scrambled by the beastie, wiping out his tiny transmitter. Bard ended the call with, Call me Ishmael! He went back to work. All right, Nessie, we're here to help. Try not get so excited. He looked at Robin. We need to scan for damage. If it's bleeding, maybe we can do something. Robin stared out the pot. How? She looked at the engineer. What's a Nessie? Have you heard of these creatures before? He laughed and began moving closer to the creature. Robin, there are things unknown to science. Nessie is an old legend about a great creature that hid in the deeps. I think it fits. Deep in her soul, she felt the buzzing of some metal craft about her. Some death ship come to color from her pack, but the waves of weakness crashed back upon her even as she tried to reach out. The pain of being crushed into one reality was too much and her mind fed again to the inner darkness. The collision damage wasn't hard to find. Cratered skin and broken scales. Embedded ore and strange fluids. Robin took notes as the engineer scanned with one instrument after another. At least it can bruise, that's a good thing, remarked Robin. Bart's look queried her. She continued... If it can bruise, it has a repair system. It's trying to heal. That's what bruising means in every other creature that can do it anyway. Bart shrugged. I... Well, let's hope so, because I can't make a bandage that'll fit her. He turned to the scout ship, passing over the damage for a closer look. Then it was his turn to swear. By all that's sacred! He accelerated. Robin paused to work. What is it? The engineer slowed down the ship near the standstill and pointed outside. That, that's not any bit of rock that we are carried. Judging out from Nessie's skin was a vast spear, a pylon that was embedded deeply and bleeding off of the fields. The scales around it had crumbled away from exposure to raw space, and the flesh was darkened by radiation burns from her speed. Every time the creature of natural fields reached out to protect the wound, 
They were ripped away and extorsted into space, bleeding her to death. The two humans sat silently as the horror of what they were seeing became clear. It was Robin that found the words first. Someone is hunting her. The engineer's face was darkening with anger as she picked up the comms. He cut to the captain only. The captain was reading the scans when the call came in. Yes, Bart, how's the unicorn? His engineer's voice was cold with fury as he explained what they had found and what it implied. His advice was blunt. The captain finally cut the call and summoned the bridge officers and called the XCC, leaving the comms open for them to listen in. His senior crew arrived quickly, wondering why they'd been pulled from their posts. The captain waited for the last of them and closed the door. He regarded his crew. I have news that's going to change things here. Comms confirms the creature, which is now called Nessie, apparently, is sentient. We have confirmed that she was indeed struck by our cargo, but Robin believes that the damage is relatively minor. The reason she was looking for help is a bloody great big harpoon in her sight bleeding her to death. He put up the engineer's recording on the screen to utter silence. She's being hunted. She is prey to something out there. And now we must make a choice. Medical spoke up. What choice? We help the beast and we have a chat. Why is that a choice? Combs got there first. Because hunters will be on the way. That wound wasn't designed to kill. It was designed to weaken. His tone turned to disgust. This is a sport, Chase. And we now stand in front of their trophy. It was rare that the entire bridge crew were humans although there were plenty of Xenos in other positions. The room grew colder, as remembered atrocities of their people had committed were recalled. Generations might have passed, but the record stood. Wading, elephant ivory, fur traders, foxes, the long list of things that had died needlessly for the entertainment of fools. Novel food, buffalo politics and pleasure. The human race had long since moved past the bitter times, but divided here. Divided here in the clean space with an abomination. Who built spacecraft to hunt for food? The captain interrupted the silence. It may be worse than that. This creature is sentient and Robin believes the species is artificial. These hunters may have given their mind to their prey, so the game would be... Uh, he spat the word. Better. The engineer dropped softly to the surface, his suit shielding him from the madness of what he was doing. He had disabled all the supplements that it would stick you with if it thought that you were at risk. He didn't trust them to judge the situation, had Land long ago decided to live screaming pain rather than die in a stupid grin on his face. The surface around the burning spear was gritty and breaking under his footsteps as he approached. He measured the protruding part 3 meters in diameter and 16 meters from the surface. From the skin, Frick knows how deep it ran. He hit it and nothing happened. After a moment, he pulled out a seismic scanner that he usually carried to check interesting rocks and bounced the signal into the metal. It mapped the response and he stood looking at the results. He looked around in sympathy. Poor bugger! Don't worry, I reckon I can take this fricker out. You just sit quietly until then, all right? Deep below, something heard his words. Perhaps each tone and hope sprang from the small crack in the darkness surrounding her mind. 
Back on board the scout ship, he called the captain. So do we stay or do we go? Because if you tell me to leave, I'll quit on the spot and you'll never get another engineer for your ship. No pressure. Robin sat in silence as Bart put every card he owned on the table at once. He could blackmail the ship, but the captain could do the same to him, and the pair of them would be left sitting on the dock. Brick. Don't worry, engineer. We're all agreed. I'm getting the ship ready to fight, and I might need some of those console commands that you carefully don't tell me about. Can you help your Nessie? The engineer sagged back into his seat, not even noticing as he squished Robin into the side of the ship. Aye, Captain. I'll come aboard and use our transporters to pull that, um, thing out of her. Robin has some ideas how to boost her field back up, and between the pair of us, we should be able to bring her back. Could you pull the ship over to our position? Now the silence on the ship was a hushed noise of a lot of people trying to do everything at once. Some of those console commands had indeed been used, and most of the systems were recalibrating to a totally different and darker purpose. The captain's main regret was that he didn't get the new AI yet. His last one had left to run the orbital, and his new one was still in the box. Bart checked that everything was progressing, as expected, when he finally mapped the seismic scan to the transporters. It wasn't helping that Nessie seemed to be waking up and shivering with pain. To himself, he kept repeating, Ashko, I'll fix it for you, just sit a wee while longer. Something hurt him. Captain, I'm gonna pull the thing out. As soon as I have it on board, Robin is going to need you to move as close as you can to Nessie. She's tuning our fields to match hers, and I'll pump up the power. Hopefully, that'll seal the wound, at least. Get comms to tell the beastie what's going to happen, and keep your eyes open. I've an idea what happens next. The engineer was never going to admit it, but he was sweating as he brought the fields to bear on Nessie. Carefully, he cut down, clinging close to the original damage. Ten meters. Fifteen. Twenty. Finally, he reached the point of the spear, and slowly he retracted the field and slipped the weapon free. Finally, he dumped it into the ship's bay and nodded to Robin. Your turn, ship shores. Robin brought the ship meters over to a vast body below and began pushing out the ship's fields. She kept it gentle, only 10 to 15% of the field strength that she had measured from Nessie. Her idea was to steal up the hull with the shields and hoped that it helped. Somehow, she had nothing else. Nessie awoke to a gentle breeze on her wound. The knife was gone, and she could feel someone trying to heal the damage. For a moment, she thought her back had found her until she tasted the death ship on her skin. She was about to run when a voice, half-remembered, half-dream, whispered to stay still, and he would make it better. She felt the moment when her skin became whole and reaching past the wound and letting her pour her power evenly across its surface. It was a moment of clear joy to be complete again. The captain and crew stared in disbelief as the sphere uncurled and the sphere surrounding the orb grew exponentially. Bart muttered, She must have been bleeding power for a long time. He scanned desperately to find whatever power source she was using, but it came up empty. His gaze was nailed to the image of what was happening outside. A vast, scaled head gazed down at the Ishmael, its body pulsing with rainbows of color as her fields filled. 
The captain cleared his throat and began to make the speech that he and his crew had decided upon. The death ship was squeaking and she listened curiously, building her power to leave. It spoke like a child. Attention, this is the mining vessel Ishmael. Please respond, Nessie. If you're awake in there, we hope that you are feeling better. It was a voice of her dreams. She responded, uh, What is a Nessie? The captain laughed. Well, uh, we don't have a name for you, so we gave you one. It is the most venerable and important name according to my engineer. Can we be of any further assistance? What if a vile creature attacked you, may still be hunting, and we're prepared to defend you? You're welcome to remain in our space. Nessie stretched her fields, absorbing the energy that was the bedrock of the universe, and rejoined in her health. She scanned the tiny, tiny creature that had come to her aid, and stood prepared to defend her. I thank you for your aid, and indeed those that dared hunt me are vile, but it is a war for a different time and place. Your people will have my gratitude, and the gratitude of my people, but I cannot remain here. I'm afraid you don't have enough. She tasted the word her whispers had known. Dimensions. Farewell. Nessie spun up a true form, wings of fire, as her fields cut through the walls of the tiny universe and made for home. Bart and the captain stood on the ship's bay. The engineer grinned. Well, uh, we made a new friend. I reckon they'll give us a first contact bonus. He nodded at the harpoon sprawled on the floor. And how much will they pay us for bringing that home with us? The captain grinned along. But did I ever tell you how this ship got its name? Why don't we open up a bottle of Bushmills that you're hiding and I'll tell you a true story. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 847 Story number one. Humans are weird. Supply and demand. The gleaming green sunlight was just angling down for the afternoon. When Flight Commander Twenty Clicks discovered that one of the humans had eaten the entire supply of acidic calcium supplements for the base, he had the hollow record right in front of him. He scratched the control screen one more time just to be sure of what he was seeing. It was a fairly simple situation on the fringes of the air mass. The human had been on duty in the supply bay. It had been his job to fill all material requests for the base. Humans were exceptionally well adapted for this duty. Their height alone made working in the warehouses an easy matter for them. Their true, terrifying compressive strength meant that they ignored the lifting machines most of the time in favor of manually filling the orders. They were more likely to send the drones for smaller packages than the larger ones. Twenty clicks had once seen a human lift an entire shelving unit full of prefabricated building cores simply to retrieve a scrap piece of paper that the human immediately tossed into the recycler. Twenty clicks scratched the control again and watched the scene over, trying to understand. The human was what they called middle-aged, not yet out of his reproductive cycle, but past prime of his breeding age. His hair was beginning to thin on top of his head in a way that made him look dull and scattered. His uniform was clean, but rumbled. He was sprawled across the chair that he was normally sitting in. He had forced two of the supports off of the ground and was bracing the unbalanced position by resting his legs on a nearby storage crate. 
In one hand, he held the data pad, which the helpful AI indicated was displaying one of the popular theoretical social simulations. The other had otherwise been occupied. Twenty clicks watched in fascination as the massive hands, easily as large as his wings, lifted from where it rested on the human's thigh and drifted almost as if not under his control for the massive mammalian brain towards the open bag of calcium citrate supplements that rested beside the human on a crate. The hand, all the time out of range of the human's binocular vision, drifted over and passed it back till it reached nearly full range of human's flexibility, then drifted back and began the short passes in the general location of the bag. This was clearly undulate behavior, or perhaps it would be if undulates were old and blinded to the visible light and was wheeling around for something. Yet twenty clicks had checked, and the human had spent only nominal amount of training time with the undulates. What this actually resembled was the slow, groping, reaching of a vine-type plant for some secure hold. Twenty clicks wondered if human hands had an autonomous search function. To think that the massive crushing power under the control of a plant-like chemical signals was terrifying. On the display, the hand brushed over the band and flexed to reach into the interior, moving more confident now that it had tactile information. The hand closed over what the humans called a handful of supplements, enough to supply a dozen humans for a month. However, the wandering hand slowly lifted him to the human's mouth and began pushing the mass of supplements into the mouth that opened slackly to admit them. The human chewed approximately half of the mass for several moments before swallowing in a massive gulp. The hand then pressed in the rest, and even as the mouth chewed, the hand drifted back down to the bag. He groped around, with slightly slower motions this time, and pulled in another handful of the supplements. This process repeated itself a few dozen times until the bag was empty. When the hand finally found no more supplements in the bag, it returned to the slack rest position on his leg. It rested there for several moments. However, the inevitable consequence of ingesting that much calcium and absorbic acid was quickly taking a toll even on the legendary metabolism of a human. His skin paled as his digestive system pulled blood to his gut to deal with the unexpected meal. The muscles around his eyes tightened and strained for a few moments. Then his mouth contracted into a grimace. The hand busy holding the data pad gave a spasm. The guilty hand rose and clutched at the human's abdomen over the general location of his primary stomach. He narrowed his eyes and looked down at his abdomen with a perplexed expression. What in the ever-loving, he muttered. He glanced over at the empty bag of supplements and his face contorted with unease or perhaps guilt. Penny Clicks was unsure. The human rose to his feet, staggering in place of the usual graceful movements. His guilty hand reached around and clutched his abdomen as he staggered to the communit of the wall. He raised one shoulder against the wall and carefully pulled up the supplies manifest. He typed in an order for emergency refill on supplies, hesitated when he came to the section in the form that requested a reason. Then after a moment, he typed in accidental destruction. The human then staggered back to his seat and collapsed in it with a groan. He stayed there for the rest of his shift, and Twenty Clicks let the recording play until it showed his own wings fitting into the storage area 
to request a new carry harness. He sighed as he turned off the recording. He had, of course, ordered the recalcitrant human to the medical bay, and the Shatar medic on duty had soon relieved the human's distress with an oral administrated oil flush. It had seemed extreme to the winged, but the Shatar and the human both agreed that it was the safest method to grind the digestive tract of calcium buildup. When, after the treatment, twenty clicks had pressed for an explanation, the human had only shrugged. I didn't notice what I was doing, he said. It was a good book. End of story. Story number two. Humans are the elders of the galaxy. Written by story writer 109. H. These aliens never even mastered spaceflight. How is that so, computer? AI. Out of fear of the unknown mistress, before us any alien that explored the stars reached their filter and are lost to time. H. It still doesn't hurt to try and explore the galaxy. AI. These aliens are not like humanity. Humanity is ambitious and ridiculously stubborn. A millennia ago, most would have thought bypassing the atmosphere was impossible. H. And we now have expanding civilization based on progress and understanding. AI. No. Unlike other civilizations, you shackled the stars. In a few years, your Dyson Sphere will be completed. You and your kin are the others, the supreme life form of this galaxy. H. I almost feel like a forerunner from Halo. AI. Mistress. I am surprised that you remember a game from the nuclear age of humanity. H. It was a good game, but nevertheless, I wonder how I should interact with them. AI. You can act like a god, or you can abduct one and use an anal probe. H. Uh, what a wonderful sense of humor you have. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 848. Story number one. Why you never gamble with a human. Written by Carl Wallace. Is this like gambling, correct? Carl nodded, sipping on the noxious chemicals that seemed to do nothing to him. It burned at twelve olfactory receptors, but the humans seemed to love it. Sort of like the ultimate game of chance. You got those, right? Atuel thought about this, quivering slightly as her eye stalk swept the room. We do, though it is frowned upon. The logicals control those games. Her beak tightened and she spoke low. My broodmother says they cheat and alter the outcome. Carl bobbed his head sagely, raising a finger to order another stinking glass of liquid. We got that on Terran. Casinos. Casinos? My spawn mate has told me of these places. He found them very overwhelming. His cyclopes barely lift his carapace. The small human laughed. Gladly accepting the drink the shaggy server had brought over. Atual declined the drink herself. Her mucus levels were quite full for now. Carl sipped, smacking the fleshy opening of his mouth and said, Yeah, frickers, the thing is, uh, you can't mess with the odds of this bet. Not at all, to the point, at least. And this form of chance betting is legal on your world. Always has been, as long as money's been a thing. You could buy it. Atwell blinked, all of her eyes squelching slightly in unison. How does one pay for this? Carl looked at her, giving off an air of confusion. 
Christ alive, explaining stuff to you lot can be hard. Okay, so say you wanted to make this bet with me, right? Why would I make it with you, Cole? Can you show me I would win? Cole shook his head. Nah, the point is you don't want to win. You want it as a safety net in case you do win. This is very odd. Where I come from, when we gamble, it's to gain fortune for very little physical effort. All the habits of the obsessive. Same as us, love. Seems like life is pretty similar, really, wherever you're evolved from. Adwell wanted to disagree wholeheartedly, but Carl continued, rubbing the fur atop his cranium. It's like, um, if I said, look, if you bet me 50 creds a standard week that you wouldn't lose three eyes, you'd only get your money back, plus what I bet you, if or when that happened. So, um, Atwell signaled the bar server for a cup of frothing Ulspawn. The bet is that I pay you until this thing occurs, at which point you return my money, plus the amount you said you'd pay if the thing happens. Yeah, Cole grinned, baring teeth in a way that still made her nervous, despite knowing him some time now. And the more you pay me each week, the more you'd get back. You broke from Terran, oh, about seven standard years ago. Didn't drink. Cole sipped from his glass, didn't smoke, exercised every day, never had sex. Adwell ignored the habitual flinch that she felt whenever humans discussed their primitive reproductive cycles. And you won't believe it, he got freaking cancer anyway. The human killer? That's right, still, Cole said bitterly. Here's the thing. He took another sip, seemed to brighten emotionally. He'd been paying massive amounts for it. When he popped his clogs, his kids, offspring, sorry, and his, uh, spawn weight, had enough creds to sort everything out and live in semi-luxury. I believe I understand. I do not know what clogs mean, but from the context, I assume, do you mean dried in his shell? Carl raised an eyebrow, the skin above creasing dramatically as those of his species were known to do. Yeah, sounds right. So, uh, where would I get this, uh, what was it called again? Entrancience. He laughed again, the grumbling, frightening basso noise that humans called a chuckle. Insurance. Adwell tried the word again, but like so many things she'd learned from Carl, her translator was struggling to decide the sounds and the letters would make. He finished his drink again. I reckon it's a good idea to get some. Working out here in the spiral arm gets pretty dangerous. I got some. Indeed. Yeah, not much. Do you wish to win your bet? Nah, but it's better to be safe. Managed to convince your brother to buy some. Cheap too. Fractal bought some of the Centrancians. Does he know that we can repair our own chitin carapace? Carl leaned in close in a gesture that, even between the different species, suggested at some deep conspiracy. But what if, one time, he can't repair it? What if your soft bits get squished or a... Another human, a female, had appeared from the crowd, slapping Cole on across the head. Oi! Stop messing with the locals. She turned to Atuel, face creased in a gesture of apology. Sorry about him. Ignore whatever he says. He's just trying to get easy creds for a mate. Cole stiffened at this. I'm not. Mind your own business, Evelyn. Atuel withdrew her eyes from her shell, soft beak opening. Cole would not deceive me. I believe this life in sure ancients... Sounds good, she said, the sound bright. We have gambling, too. Bloody hell, Cole, you told her it was like betting on a game. Cole frowned in his drink and like a human pup. Well, it is, really. Evelyn sat down next to him, looked at Atwell and the eye stalks. 
Like I said, Cole here is just trying to drum up business for his mate. Ignore him. I, on the other hand, can offer you a much better deal. Gittal and his spawnmate, Appyal, watched with interest as one of the crewmates interacted with the bickering humans. You must concede to them, Appyal, that human merchants seem to be second to none. Do you think it's their disarming appearance, their fearsome reputation? I do hope they don't begin to bully and frighten their way into the market dominance. Gittal retracted three eye stalks in disagreement. No, Perdwan, I think it's simpler than that. Oh, do enlighten me, father of spawn. Gittel drank the frothy drink he held in one tentacle, replenishing his mucus. Mother of spawn, I do believe that they are simply sneaky, clever bastards. End of story. Story number two. Fight Clubs, written by Ice Cream and Wine. Standing on the bridge of Earth's flagship Gaia, where Otzen, the Voltaren observer, said to the human admiral, why have you not moved to engage the Stroth fleet? And why are there so many gaps in your line of battle? Admiral Smith said, We're waiting for them. He pointed at the display in front of them, where Otzen saw hundreds of green dots emerging from the Oort cloud. I thought that this was your entire fleet, all that you could scrape up. Most of the military ships we can muster at this time, the others are en route as we speak, but... Uh, by the time they get you, it'll probably be all over, said Smith. Even with these new ships, said Watson, gesturing at the plot. You are outnumbered, the Admiral said. Yes, you could say that. However, these will make a difference. I've scanned these new ships. You name your military ships after your war heroes, battles, and great leaders, do you not? And I do not recognize any of these names. What do they mean? He indicated his plot and the names of said ships. Amongst the hundreds of names he highlighted were the following. There are no rules. Nuts. May the force be with you. Out of bubblegum. Come get some. Perch the Xenos. Bring it. You wanna go? One inch bunch. Headhunters. Clobbering time. Puny aliens. Gestures hypnotically. Heglumer Aircag Jagvem. Death or glory. Resistance is futile. Glasgow kiss. With shield or on it. Perfervious Albion. Cry havoc. You want some? Once more into the breach. Top of the world, ma. To boldly go. Leroy Jenkins. From our cold, dead hands. Kick him in a fork. Load shotgun with malicious intent. My death, Chippa'ai, the Valen's name, pointed stick. Never tell me, the odds. Oh, those aren't military ships. They are what we tend to call enthusiastic amateurs. Enthusiastic amateurs? What do you mean? They are groups of like-minded individuals who like to fight and sometimes band together to do it more effectively. And it doesn't get better than fighting aliens bent on conquering your home, now does it? I don't understand. You let amateurs take part in the conflict. Can't stop them. They just turn up and get stuck in. And they do help tremendously. Besides, the Stroth are just glorified pirates. Whenever we're under threat of invasion, they turn up and assist the fleet. I don't understand. What, what do you mean, whenever you're under the threat of invasion? 
You didn't think this was the first time, did you? Given our planet's resources, we have been attempting target for a few predatory alien incursions in the past. Remember the Quarpec? Yes, I remember them. Their fleet was utterly destroyed by Earth's fleet a few cycles ago. Close, but no cigar. The fleet didn't fire a shot. The enthusiasts beat the crap out of them by themselves. But, um, the, uh, but the Quarpac were a major military power, stammered Wotson. They, uh, used to be a major military power. Now they can't even control their own civilian population, and their plutocracy will fail in a couple cycles. I don't understand any of this, said the Volteron. It doesn't matter that much. The game's afoot, Watson. Smith indicated to the plot as the green dots passed through the fleet's formation and moved towards the Stroth fleet. Now pay attention, because if you blink, you'll probably miss it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 849. Story number one. The Line That Shouldn't Be Crossed. Written by Admiral Marsupio Three. Ever since they arrived on the galactic scene, the Driss had been looking for the human's weakness in battle. It wasn't like they were perfect. They had plenty of minor weaknesses, but nothing that could be exploited. Every time they found one, the humans were already aware of it and had defenses or countermeasures in place. But ever since the humans defeated them when they attempted to annex two independent systems, they had been plotting their revenge. Then we met a new race called the Aroxans, an arachnid race that had just achieved FDL travel. The sight of three quarters of the human diplomatic team either freeze in terror or just straight up running away. The Driss knew they had found it. The humans did everything they could to become allies with them, offering trade deals that greatly favored the Aroxans, sending gifts of great value, and even offering them a system that they had recently terraformed but not yet colonized. It was clear that the humans feared the Aroxans, despite unmatching the new race in every financial, political, and military way. Unfortunately for the Driss, the Aroxans had accepted the humans' overtures and had no intention of siding with them. Covertly, they captured a large number of Aroxans over the course of a year then spent a decade breeding the quick-maturing captives and using control chips to force them to follow whatever orders they were given. They trained these captives to fight against the docile-friendly nature, developed advanced weapons specifically for them, and fifteen years after first contact with the Aroxans, invaded the closest human settlement with a new army. It went perfectly. At first... The humans were so distracted by their instinctual fear of arachnids that Driss's Aroxan troops won 90% of the engagements in the first two weeks, taking two-thirds of the terraformed planets and all but two of the hundreds of stations and colonies across the rest of the system in a rapid blitz. They even cut off diplomatic ties with the Aroxans, believing themselves betrayed by the race that put so much effort into appeasing. We knew the humans' temper, and thought their response to the Aroxans would be severe. That's when some of us realized that something was wrong. The humans didn't seem scared or even angry at the betrayal. They seemed hurt. As some of us dug deeper, we realized they hadn't offered the Aroxans all those bribes and tributes out of fear. They had done it 
out of shame. They had felt so bad for recoiling in horror when they first saw them. They had seen their revulsion as a grave insult to what was actually a perfectly nice and reasonable race, and had offered all that as an apology. They hadn't avoided the rocks and systems because they were afraid, which they still were whenever they saw them. They had done it because they were worried about inflicting further insult upon the Roxans. When the humans found the control chip, we thought that they would be angry at how the Driss had driven a wedge between the races. And they were. We thought that they would be enraged at the thought of the Driss using control chips to force others to fight, knowing the remainder of their own dark history was something that they hated. And they were. But the fact that they had done it to such a docile and friendly race, one the humans had already felt shame about insulting at first contact, and had now furthered that shame by cutting ties with them when they were innocent. It elicited a reaction that we were completely unprepared for. They changed tactics, choosing to fight at a severe disadvantage so that they could capture Aroxan troops, doing everything that they could not to kill the enemy losing many more troops than they would have if they had just fought to kill the enemy. The initial fear that they'd shown when fighting the Aroxans was gone. It turned out you can make a human angry enough to ignore even primal instinctual terror. But even then, they still fought within the honorable rules of engagement. It took a massive diversion of their military to achieve this victory, leaving more than one system open to invasion by the Driss. Once they had recaptured the system from the Eroxan slave troops, the humans gave the Driss an ultimatum. Return all systems taken, release all Eroxans they had captured, and give the Eroxans full resource-rich systems as compensation for the terrible crimes committed against them, or else. The Driss were still oblivious to the incoming storm, thinking that they had outmaneuvered their mighty, warlike humans. By the time the humans had recaptured their system and saved the Aroxans they were fighting against, the Driss were deeply entrenched in other systems that they had taken. It would take years to take them back. Or so we thought. So the Driss refused. The humans' response chilled us to the bone. So you want to play dirty games with us? Remember, this is your choice. What happens next? is on you. The humans never broke their own laws of war and combat, not in any way that was provable in a court anyway. They provided endless legal documents to prove that they were unable to capture the large numbers of their own military that had gone uh, rogue and were now committing terrible atrocities against the Driss military targets. Napalm, cluster bombs, and sarin became the most feared words in the galaxy even when we could prove they had completely collapsed the Driss economy and taken 90% of their financial accounts held at galactic banks. They practically drowned the courts in records, proving that it was all legal. It took 20 years to close all the loopholes, and it was only implied, but unprovable threats from the humans that stopped those loopholes from being exploited by others. The humans never touched a credit of anyone else's money. When at prison transport that just so happened to house their 10,000 most dangerous and violent psychopathic serial killers had managed to be overtaken by the inmates and landed on a Driss planet, no one could prove that it was deliberate. 
the crimes committed on that planet still haunt the nightmares of anyone who investigated them. And no one could ever prove that the terrorists who had captured and skinned the Triss leaders on a live broadcast to the galaxy weren't actually terrorists with no connection to them, despite how they seemed to have cutting-edge human weaponry and technology. It took the Triss two months to surrender unconditionally. End of story. Story number two. Comply or die. Written by underscore underscore dash underscore 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 dash 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 underscore. The status quo was always maintained. We didn't rule you served. Your servitude had no fixed end. It ended as the whims of political intrigue shifted. Everyone wanted to be popular. Everyone wanted to carry a boon of popular support. Everyone knew that it was fate that someone was stuck in servitude. It was simply their turn until political situation said otherwise. That shift was found as soon as another was discovered to fill that subservient role. No one expected fanatics to storm proverbial beaches. The Sonra were the latest to serve. They performed their duties well. You couldn't find a civilized world or hub that lacked Sonra element. They provided their entertainers, sex workers, and labor of the galaxy for the foreseeable future. Their species' survival was guaranteed by this service. No one could deny that, not even after their betrayal. Their betrayal it was, as no one knew what the undead warriors that collapsed governments were until the Sunra were pressed. The living dead served to liberate them from servitude, to deny them the destiny that they were due. Detention facilities, where the Sonra were questioned, found themselves swarmed by skeletal warriors. It was as if everything the galaxy could offer to counter them would turn to their weakness. That was how the galaxy learned of humanity. A two-front war was considered suicidal. Humanity engaged in an eight-front war, a war that pursued without attempting political contact. There wasn't a star-faring vessel safe from their raiders, nor was there a Sonra processor safe from their persecution. Local Sonra leaders found themselves bombarded from orbit if they refused to discontinue personnel transfers. Transporters found themselves subjected to search and interrogation, else they desire outright destruction. There was no halting humanity's persecution of those enforcing the status quo. To do so guaranteed a division of their orbital drop troops would pay a personal visit. How did you fight a species determined to commit suicide? Within a day of staff discovering an intent to resist humanity, you would see a desertion of security troops. No one wanted to face their skull-faced space specters. There were multiple engagements where their liberty battalions were met by mass surrenders instead of resistance. Mass surrenders and direction to whom controlled the economy and status quo. Beings light years away from home, those humans were willing to die for persons not of their species and not of their concern. Their deaths were more problematic than their military hostility or kill ratio. Humanity broadcast everything, especially their last stands. The galaxy shifted as more of their last stands were broadcast. Who could compete on a propaganda scale that supernatural soldiers dying to protect the underclass? Victories against humanity were turned into rallying points, 
swelling their ranks with humans and non-humans, species they call comrades. The galaxy always knew the term slavery, but the galaxy had learned to fear it when humanity was contacted. Humans would suffer egregious losses to prevent it, and their ranks swell with those liberated. In a decade, they had changed the galactic status quo more than the past millennium had. In three decades, they had shifted the status quo to their standard. Humanity engaged in an eight-front war to outlaw slavery. A war they won, and a war they continuously engaged in to protect all sapiens. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 850. Story number one, Risk Averse, written by Digital 332006. When the Thront discovered humanity, there was a cause of celebration on both sides. It had been 5.8 billion years since they had taken to space, and humans were the first so fonts that they'd encountered. Unfortunately, it would take many years for the Thront on their home world to discover this, as the Thront did not have FTL drives. A message would have to be sent by probe, taking some 30,000 years to get back home. As both cultures had much in common, both being bipedal mammals with legs and arms, initial meetings went along splendidly. So much so, that the colonists generally accepted humanity's invitation to visit for some time, hoping to share knowledge and culture. Compared to the next 80 years of travel before their inevitable deaths that awaited them on their journey of reaching a colonizable world that they had selected. This seemed like quite the opportunity to most Thront who'd never have any other chance to step on solid ground. Thus, it was with some trepidation that Zalwan accepted the diplomatic post to follow another similarly assigned human to help each other learn about their species. Salvan stepped off the plane at Heathrow Airport and looked for the human colleague. Looking around, humans moved back and forth with decisive steps. No time wasted. He managed to spot a large cardboard sign with his name on it. He approached the holder and introduced himself. Greetings, I'm Zalwan. You must be Tony. Hi, that's me. How was your flight? Asked Tony, putting the sign down. Zulvan shrugged, a little bumpy for my tastes, but I was assured that it was quite safe. Oh yeah, plane travel is some of the safest methods of travel that we have nowadays. Less than 0.01% of flights have accidents. Remembered Tony, having seen a BBC report on the subject a few weeks prior. Ah, excellent. Those statistics make me feel better. Where are we going now? Zulvan made sure that the small floating suitcase that was following him around was still there. Well, I reckon we should go to my apartment, get you some clothes that stand out a bit less, and then we can hit the pub. Tony glanced quickly at the peculiar floating object, slightly impressed at the alien technology. Zulvan wondered what an apartment and a pub was, but nodded and followed Tony outside to a small metal box with doors. Tony opened one of the doors, showing his alien friend how to do it. I'm guessing you don't have cars back home, Tony said as he fastened his seatbelt. Well, I've never actually been back home. My family have been on board the colony ship for the last 17,649 years. 
But in the media we have on board, most travel is either aerial or subterranean. Sylvan copied Tony, clicking the seatbelt in place. Well, sounds pretty rough. That's a pretty huge commitment. Do you ever feel any regrets? Tony talked as he started the car, leaving the airport's parking lot. Hmm. Some do not take well to it, but I want to do my part for the greater good. It's a satisfying career. And you never developed FTL technology. I know we've been working on it, but you've been in spacefaring civilization for a while now, no? Asked Tony, merging onto the highway as he accelerated, causing Zulvan to grip the door handle. We found out how to do it something like 1.4 million years ago, but it was way too risky. Nearly 6% of the time, the results were catastrophic accidents. You couldn't solve it in over a million years. We don't stand a chance. Bollocks! Not even sure we have 20,000 years of written history. I'm sure quite a few would take the odds for an FTL drive, however. Tony thought about it, and figured he'd even willingly take a 5% odds of instant death teleporter if it meant avoiding morning traffic. It was Levan's turn to be impressed. What? Your entire species has evolved this much in so little time. You must all be geniuses of the highest level. Tony laughed. You'd be disappointed. Trial and error paved the way for where we are today. The early space missions mostly ended in failure and more than 50% of the time. Surely you jest. That's tantamount to suicide, exclaimed Zulvan, shocked by the very idea. I mean, many activities we do are risky. Stuff like skydiving, racing bikes, water skiing, to name a few, listed off Tony. Well, I'll never do anything so careless, scoffed Zulvan. Tony thought about something for a moment before replying, If you think about it, 1.3 million humans die in car crashes yearly. A car braked suddenly in front of them, and Tony expertly dodged it by switching to the next lane, honking aggressively at the car as he passed by it. Bloody idiot! Where was I? Oh yes, we even have this mechanism where our brains stop us from thinking about our own mortality. That was when Zulvan realized that perhaps that humanity's ability to attempt things that had a high chance of failure greatly contributed to the rate of their advancement. Every discovery made by the Throne had been done very meticulously, and only when enough data was available to ensure a very high success rate. Compared to the humans, his species was risk-averse, but perhaps a bit more sane. End of story. Story number two. Humanity's Advanced Battlecruiser Class Naming Convention. Written by Mean Gator. ABG-05 was a hull designation for the last one of a class of the latest something with the size between a heavy battlecruiser and a battleship. You could call it a pocket battleship. But at 3,307 meters in length and weighing as much as a group of battleships due to its new armor, Pocket doesn't feel like the right description. The new class was expensive as hell, but the humans tend to not spare expenses on their new toys. And furthermore, getting a class of ships as fast as an attack corvette and having the punch of a battleship is a huge plus. Not to mention that due to its armor of collapsed matter, 
it could pass through a moon at full speed without even getting a dent. I crap you not, this was discovered by an accidental gross navigational miscalculation on ABG-01 trials, and hence the name Now You See Me. Messing with humans is generally unhealthy for your fleets, and thank the gods for their bizarre war rules forbidding attacks on civilian population. The Roviel League learned the hard way that the appearance of even one of these monstrosities is a very bad omen for your military. It is not a coincidence that ABG-02's name is the same bad omen. Next on the humans' naughty list were the Massacre, the ancient bullies. While not genocidal, thank the gods, the Massacre were a major pain in the ass for the rest of the galactic civilization. They decided that they didn't like how the humans had advanced and declared war. Tough luck, and Massacre were the ones for whom the bell tolls. Not coincidentally, the names of ABG-3 and ABG-4 that led the fleet to beat them into submission. Strangely enough, they helped them rebuild on the condition, please stop bullying the others or else. Some fraction of the massacre didn't like these conditions, but their dreams of revenge died soon enough. Just as ABG-05 finished a trance and led the human fleet against them, to make this specific fraction a footnote to history, and the rest of the massacre docile as ugly puppies. Hence the name, and then there were none, was given to ABG-05, the last of this class. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 851 Story number one, A Warrior's Death, written by Echoing Cascade. The death of men entered the terrifying truth. The bar where all the deaths of sentience throughout the universe met to talk and get their hands, pseudopods, tentacles, claws, and other appendages on a cold drink. The death of man was given a wide berth. He used to be mocked for the training he did in his off hours and the multitude of weapons he carried in the hammer space inside of his cloak. That was until he allowed a few of his peers to follow him into the human war a few centuries ago. The rules of the various deaths were quite simple. They appeared in person only to the dying soldiers on a battlefield and to females who were about to die during childbirth. They had earned the right to be reaped in person. The deaths would appear to them in a place between this will and the neck and end their mortal lives so that they could move on. The war he took the other deaths to was a small affair by human standards. Only a couple million had perished. This alone terrified the deaths of the more passive species who didn't see this quantity of casualties in centuries. But what followed terrified even the deaths of the proud warrior races. When the death of men approached the dying soldiers, there was the usual mix of reactions. Fear, shock, and serenity brought by knowing that the fighting was done. They allowed death to simply swing his scythe and go to their afterlife. But that was not all. Some did not look at death with fear or reverence. No, some looked angry, furious, and from the depths of their souls conjured weapons they wielded in life and charged. Former enemies and allies alike trying to kill, well, death itself. The death of men grinned, not that he could pull many other expressions, 
and drew from his cloak a long sword and a short axe as his scythe of office disappeared. The fight was short, and the soldiers fell to the eternal rest in a couple of swings. Death amended. You see, they do not always allow themselves to be reaped. Sometimes they fight back. I blame that one human who said something about not going gently into that good planetary rotation or something. The other deaths nodded. They were used to fear, or being welcomed and the odd begging, but hostility, and the fact that they wielded weapons. No one made fun of the death of men after that. The death of men had come into the bar after a hard day of work. The Strally had declared war on a human colony. The marines deployed them had given their transport to evacuate civilians and had chosen to stay and fight. A hundred marines fought four thousand Strally. A little over two thousand Strally remained when the dust settled. It come to reap the marines when things got uh, complicated. The death of men appeared in front of the marines. Captain Cross, you and your soldiers fought well, but it is time to lay down your arms and go to your just reward. Captain Cross was not a religious man, but seeing a cloaked skeletal figure wielding a scythe and all his men he had previously seen torn to shreds and mutilated stand in perfect uniform was something even he could hardly ignore. What happens now? Death of men. It is not for me to decide. I am but a reaper. I and lives. I do no more and no less. Captain Cross nodded and looked at his men. They had certainly earned their rest. Every last one of them. Wait. Not all of them. Can anyone see Drake, Vasquez, or Willard? The soldiers present looked around, and after a moment, the answer came back. They were not here. Death of men. I have not reaped them yet. They are running away from the Stralium as you had ordered. They have complete records of the engagements they are to deliver to high command. Captain Cross. Not reaped them yet. The death of men knew what was going to happen next. He'd seen it before. I could always lie, he thought to himself for a second, but he couldn't. Death Amanda, there is an order to these things. I cannot reap them until I have reaped you all. Captain Cross had been looking old, grey and tired, but was now young and in his prime. His pristine uniform started to fade. Is that right? The uniform was now completely gone. In its place, his old battered armor, sword and pulse pistol clothed him like a regalia of a warrior king. The death of men didn't need to look at the other soldiers to know the same was happening to them. Before we begin, you should know that a day here is but a second where those three are. The marines didn't hear or didn't care. They were already attacking. Vasquez was the last surviving member of his unit. The two other had stood their ground to give him more time. He was always the fastest, and he was now running for the communications center. He had a job to do, and he would complete it no matter what. He made it to the console. He was downloading the data in his armor, and was about to send it to high command. This would be more than enough to earn them an edge when they faced the Strali. Before the wound on his chest could kill him, 
He pushed the final button to send the file, and he could have sworn he saw a cloaked figure in the corner of his eye, arms crossed, leaning against the wall. The 97 Marines had earned 10 seconds and 9 tenths of a second. It took Vasquez, Drake and Willard 11 seconds flat to finish their work. The death of men took his glass and looked at it solemnly and smiled to himself. So I rounded up. No law against that. He finished his drink and went back home. Today, he would focus on his footwork. Men of Story Story number two. M.A.D. Written by Mean Gator. Humanity was the last one to join the galactic community. Community. It was more like an ancient far west. It was good fortune for us that we discovered FTL drives very late. So we have considerable advanced technology in our hands. We are not that powerful to draw a coalition against us but powerful enough to give second thoughts to anyone not having the better of intentions. The dream of joining the community died in its tracks. It was kill, not be killed, eat, not be eaten. Unfortunately, we got the attention of the Jazen. It's an irony. By the physical appearance of one of the most dangerous species, it was not like a feverish nightmare. They were not lizards. They were not insectoids. They were humanoids, Beautiful, elven-like humanoids. Jarzen were considerably more advanced technologically and way more powerful. We would have no luck in a full confrontation. But humans were not naive to these kinds of games. You see, almost every species was unified long before they left the planet for the first time. Humans, on the other hand, were not unified even after discovering FTL. Our solar system has the same violent history as our planet. The only reason that we hadn't blown ourselves to kingdom come was the same reason that we didn't annihilate ourselves in a nuclear inferno. Back when we all lived on old Earth. M.A.D. Mutually Assured Destruction The Jazen were to get a hard lesson that humans don't freak around with retaliating. It's good to learn for your mistakes. It's even better to learn from the mistakes of others. The whole galactic community will have today as the chance to learn from Jarzin's mistake. Do not frick with humans. I am alone in the cockpit. I'm not riding on my spaceship. It's not my spaceship. It's a Nova Bomb that'll dive deep into Jarzin's home system star and create a wormhole that'll destabilize the core. I look at the photo of my family, my husband, and my two kids. Our colony was used by Jarzin as an example. My family, long dead. I volunteered to use their own freaking homeworld to make an even more severe example. Break with us, and we are going to break with you back, not in the tenfold, not in the hundredfold, but to a thousandfold, to a ten thousandfold. I was deep in their son's core. My time had come. I pumped up the volume. I wouldn't go silently into the dark. When you're brought into this world, they say that you're born in sin. Well, at least they gave me something. I didn't have to steal or have to win. Well, they'll tell me I'm wanted. Yeah, I'm a wanted man. I'm a cult in your stable. I'm what came was to Abel. Mr. Catch me if you can. I press the button. I'm going out in a blaze of glory. Take me now, but know the truth. I'm going out 
in a blaze of glory. Moments later, the blaze of a new supernova lit the galaxy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 852 Story number one. Pointed stick written by ice cream and wine. The alien stood at the center of the arena, their emotions radiating from them. Terror, surprise, and uncertainty chief amongst them. We only had the sketchiest of information about them. Our mistake. Short, stocky, powerful, with two upper and lower extremities. The bigger one was screaming incoherently, and the smaller one was quiet, standing there and looking questioningly at the bigger specimen. The larger one bent down and conversed with the smaller one. At this, the emotions of both of them changed from terror to concern. That should have been our second clue. The arena doors opened and the deluxe were herded in. Four-legged furry quadrupeds, four feet at the shoulder and the head consisting of mainly teeth. The larger specimen took in the situation instantly and pulled the smaller one behind it. The handlers released the Durax, a medium-sized creature that had been goaded in the pens and was now looking for something to take out its unhappiness on. It made straight for the creatures and rushed to attack. The large alien met the charge, caught in a mild leap and tore it in half. A Durax literally torn in half in under a second. I doubt that anybody currently alive had ever seen that before. Two more Durax were loosed and the same result though the bigger specimen took a bite to the upper appendage. Three more were released, two were downed almost immediately. The third's leap put the larger creature on its back. It strained to get its jaws on the alien's throat. The creature fought desperately to keep the jaws away, but was losing the battle. When the Jurok's head exploded, when the younger specimen put one of its lower extremities through its skull, everything stopped. The smaller one helped the larger one up. The larger one touched its head to the smaller one for a few seconds, and then they stood back to back. The Morellian trooper was shoved into the arena, all spiky carapace and claws. The older specimen roared at it and stood there waiting. The older specimen pushed the smaller one behind it again, but the smaller one shook its head and moved to stand six feet to the right of the older one. The trooper rightly prioritized the older specimen as the greater threat and approached it with all four sets of claws spread wide. The aliens both continuously circled to the right, keeping the trooper off balance, until they'd lost patience and charged. The older specimen leapt straight at it, which surprised the trooper, who had no time to adjust its tactics. An upper appendage was driven into the trooper's head, which turned to pulp almost immediately. Emotions washed over the arena. Rage, satisfaction, and triumph. Never had emotions been so strongly felt. Many people went into catatonic shock as they were unable to mentally cope with them. Three more troopers were sent in and they were defeated. However, the larger specimen had slowed to an almost standstill and was leaking a red fluid from several areas on his body. The Primarch himself that entered the arena, clad in his ornate battle armor. It still took him 10 to 15 minutes to subdue and dismember the larger specimen. Gasping and wheezing, he proclaimed, put the smaller creature into a cell 
I will kill it tomorrow. The smaller creature clung to the body of the larger specimen, rage, hatred, and fear emanating from it so strongly that nobody wanted to approach it. Presently, a squad of troopers with spears drove it over the arena and into a holding cell. All the while, it was bellowing its rage, and awash with its emotions, nobody noticed that it was clutching one of the older specimen's upper appendages. Overnight, the cameras in the cell seemed to show the alien eating at their appendage. Revulsion, disgust, and horror flooded the control room. Having fed, the smaller creature appeared to go to sleep. On the morrow, the creature was forced into the arena again by spear-bearing troopers. It stood in the center of the arena. The emotions radiating from it were strange. Not fear, just cold, hard hatred. The armored Primarch entered the arena and regarded the alien. The alien bellowed something and waved its upper appendage. Somehow, the gesture conveyed dismissiveness. The Primarch attacked and missed. The creature was fast, extremely fast, and bellowing time and time again. The bellowing somehow sounded like insults. The Primarch attacked again and again, the creature evading the attacks with ease. Finally, the Primarch, still stiff from yesterday's exertions, moved too close to the creature, who tripped him. The Primarch hit the floor, and immediately the creature repeatedly applied its lower appendages to the Primarch's helmet, which blew apart from the impacts. The Primarch rolled onto his back, the creature leapt onto his front, removing a thin white piece of something from up his sleeve and stabbed him in the throat several times, all the while roaring incoherently. The creature then stood on the body of the Primarch, one foot on his chest and the other on the floor, holding the white thing to the sky and bellowing. No further chances were taking. The creature was destroyed from long range. A few months later, having broken the encryption on their crashed ship, some of the following was established. The creatures were humans. The larger creature was a female of 67 of their years, nearly two-thirds through her life cycle. The smaller creature was the offspring of her offspring. The smaller creature was a male of ten of their years, not even one-ninth through his life cycle. The roaring when the smaller creature killed the Primarch, translated as, This is what you get when you hurt my grandma. Standing on the Primarch's corpse, the smaller creature bellowed, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Then the thin white thing that killed the Primarch was a bone from inside the appendage the younger creature carried into the cell. He wasn't eating it. He was fashioning himself a weapon. The new Primarch instantly forbade any forays into human space, and all information was suppressed under pain of death. But, as is usually the case, it's not a secret if more than one person knows about it. End of story. Story number two. A Locked Room and an Unconscious Death Builder Written by Admiral Marsupial III The Jew was scared. He didn't know where he was. He was groggy, his head hurt, and he was certain he had been drugged. And there was a rather large death builder lying bloody and battered on the floor of the locked room that he just woke up in. What had happened? Why had it happened to him? What did the being who had beaten the human senseless have in mind for him? 
Yesterday, he had just finished his first term at university. He hadn't seen many alien species before. He left his homeworld to attend university in a different planet. Shuvi was on the fringe of habitable space and not one of the major civilizations. Not many came to visit. University was daunting at first. There were hundreds of different species, and he was the only one from Shuvi. For the first few weeks, he kept to himself, just quietly got on with his lessons and making his small dorm room his own little getaway. He was so grateful when his parents had been able to get him a single room rather than a shared dorm. As he left the exam hall yesterday, one of his fellow students, a human named Phil, the same death warder, now unconscious and bleeding in front of him, had asked Juju what he was doing to celebrate the end of the term. He hadn't been planning on anything other than going back to his room and relaxing. Phil asked him if he wanted to come out with him and his friends. Juju wasn't going to accept, but Phil had probably been the only person who he knew more than just to say hi to. Maybe because Phil sat next to him in class and decided to make friends with him. He agreed to go along, and the next thing Juju knew, he was here, with no clear memory after that moment. Juju heard Phil groan in pain and shuffled over to whisper to him, hoping not to alert whoever had done this to them. Phil, are you okay? Do you remember what happened? Why are we here? Juju, hoping that Phil might know something that would help them escape whatever mess they were in. Phil didn't answer. He slowly started moving, struggling to his feet, a low grunt accompanying every pained motion. Once he managed to fully stand upright, Juju saw Phil's face change from one of agony to one of fear rage. Phil almost roared out his next words. Quiet, you freaking chicken-headed bastard! I'm gonna rip your freaking wings out! Bull then walked up to the wall opposite Juju and leashed a kick so savage it went straight through the wall. Bull tucked his bloody arm into his body and slammed into the wall shoulder first and smashed through. Through the human-sized hole in the wall, Juju saw the terrified Redian, an avian species, probably the freaking chicken-headed bastard that Phil had referred to. An enraged human advanced on him. He never noticed the camera. I swear I didn't plan it. I couldn't have planned this if I tried. What are the chances? Some may say I went too far. But what else am I supposed to do with a friend who's already a drama student and a friend who's a makeup artist that also once helped to knock down an internal drywall at her house? The same house that we crashed at after the party last night. And a friend who's still unconscious, soon to be very hungover, alien. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 853. Story number one. The Other Way to Skin a Cat. Written by Admiral Marsupial 3. The galaxy waited to learn the human's fate. They had always been brash and overconfident. Their qualities had actually endeared them to many of the older races who were grateful to this young race for injecting some energy into what was becoming a stagnant galactic culture. Everyone knew it would eventually get them in trouble, but no one thought that they would be this stupid. The Nessian Empire was a major military force in the galaxy. 
the size of their armies and navies requiring the combined forces of five races to guard the border to stop any threat of incursion into allied space, the humans being one of the races who bordered their territory. After one of the many border skirmishes had resulted in a particularly bad humanitarian crisis on a large frontier colony, the humans had sent out their red angels. They were an organization dedicated to helping those affected by combat. That had been formed when the humans had moved into space and unified, made of several organizations that had performed the same functions on Earth before FTL travel. Taking the most direct route to the colony that resulted them crossing the Nessian territory briefly. But that brief in question had resulted in the ship being captured and taken back to the Ness Prime. The humans and many other allies were furious that non-combatants had been attacked and kidnapped. However, while their allies were pragmatic about what they could do about it, the humans were not. They made a public declaration directly to the Nessian Emperor, demanding their immediate return or he would personally face the consequences. The allied races were horrified. Not only had they made an impossible and empty threat, the Allied forces had struggled to force the current stalemate so there was no way the force would be able to break through and rescue the ship. They had also personally threatened the Nessian Emperor, her being revered with almost godlike status amongst their population. They knew the response would be dire. They had asked the humans what the hell they were hoping to achieve with such an obviously empty threat. They simply received a cryptic response. There's more than one way to skin a cat. The galaxy watched in fear as the Nessian Emperor personally broadcast his response across the Milky Way. You humans need to learn your place. You do not make demands of gods. Your captured people will be publicly executed. Then our forces will sweep into your territory and extinguish all humans across ten of your worlds. One hundred million dead for each of your captured people that you want back so much. As he took a breath to continue, the galaxy looked on, some in fear, some in confusion, others in complete awe as a black-clad human emerged from the shadows behind the Nessian Emperor and fired a single shot from his weapon into the back of his head, turning it into a green mist in front of the entire galaxy before vanishing into the shadows again. Just before the feed cut, the whole galaxy heard the voice of John Mac McTavish of the SAS echo from the darkness. Maybe your successor will be more intelligent, you daft cunt. End of story. Story number two. The Starseed Project, written by C-SPAN. As far as plans for interstellar colonization go, it was fairly simple and surprisingly forward-thinking. Step 1. Glue a couple kilos of assembly nanobots and a mid-tier AI to an RCS system and soda sail. Step 2. Using a combination of magnetic accelerators and orbital mechanics, bring the whole package as fast as possible at a neighboring star. Step 3. Wait. Around halfway to its destination, the soda sail opens, and, if everyone has done their math right, the satellite will gently coast into its new home. Give the AI the goal of making the system as hospitable to human life as possible, and wait for the people to show up. 
Of course, as fast as possible means almost nothing when interstellar distances are taken into account. So the travel time to even the nearby stars would be measured in centuries. A few centuries is a very long time for things to go wrong. And assembly nanobots would cheap. So maybe send a couple hundred probes for redundancy's sake. And there weren't very many other uses for the magnetic accelerators. So it wouldn't hurt to keep firing probes at any star with an exoplanet or two until the budget ran out. The whole project got its start as a political ploy, a way for a politician to dazzle her constituents with her grand plans for the future. It worked a lot better than she'd expected, and since the budget for the project amounted to a rounding error for most government branches, she decided to actually implement it as a way to say, look, I keep my promises. The whole thing was shuffled off to a hastily formed apartment that consisted of a couple dozen over-eager grad students and a few expendable middle-manager types. Somewhere along the line, someone remarked that the whole thing reminded them of bits of pollen being flung into the wind, and the probes were called starseeds as a result. Nobody involved in the naming process actually knew anything about botany, and the inaccuracy was pointed out far too late to change the name. So the Starseed Project chugged merrily along for a few decades, spitting out a couple hundred thousand probes until the whole thing was axed as a part of a cost-cutting measure. Everyone involved patted themselves on the back, secure in the knowledge that future generations would be incredibly grateful for what they'd done. The hitch in the plan had come not from the Starseeds themselves, but the people who were supposed to follow them. Biologists couldn't come up with a cryogenic system that didn't have a horrifyingly high casualty rate. Boston and light travel was still a realm of science fiction, and nobody was especially keen to go on a journey their great-great-great-grandkids wouldn't see the end of, assuming that they didn't hit an interstellar micrometeorite and die on the way. So nobody went and humanity felt largely content in its home solar system. Until an incredibly unfortunate and cosmically improbable gamma ray burst from a nearby supernova killed every living being in the solar system that wasn't buried under three kilometers of rock. Since very few humans live buried under three kilometers of rock, if at all possible, the human race went extinct shortly thereafter and didn't feel much of anything anymore. But the starseeds remained. Because nobody really knew what was actually at the target star systems, the goal for the starseeds AI was deliberately left fairly vague. Simply, make it as habitable as possible, as fast as possible. However, AIs are a largely uncreative bunch, and the ones that made it all ended up doing pretty much the same thing. First, the local asteroid belt was mined and turned into factories and all processes and sensor arrays. And all the things the nanobots could do kind of okay, but something bigger could do much better. All this new industry was turned into two goals. The first was setting up planet-side habitats for the incoming colonists. The second was terraforming said planets. The first goal was fairly easily accomplished in a few decades. The second was much harder and had a timescale that measured in the centuries. But that was okay. It's not like the AIs in charge had anything better to do. As the centuries ticked on and the terraforming approached completion, the AIs began to enact even longer-term plans. 
They would continue to make the existing planets as Earth-like as possible. And when they were exact, sterile copies of Earth, new planets would be built to spec out of the gas giants and various detritus of the solar system. The project would take millennia, but nobody had showed up to tell them to stop, and nobody ever would. Humanity having perished about 40 years after the first star seed reached its destination. And after the entire system was converted to Earth-like analogues, the AI in charge would pick up and move on. One system ended up with an impressive 208 replica Earths, although most averaged to a dozen or so. When you casually abandon a few thousand planets that were specifically designed to be as hospitable to life as possible, life will eventually evolve to fill the space. It would be rude of it not to. So a few billion years after humanity had stopped existing, a once empty galaxy teemed with all sorts of new and fantastical sentience. And much of the new and fantastical sentience wondered why every single rocky body in the observable universe looked exactly the same, and why they all showed signs of being engineered to be that way. Many theories were proposed, from the mundane to the outlandish. It was a topic of conversation that lent itself to the divine, but no matter how outlandish the theory, none of them quite approached the truth. That the existence of them and every other species was the direct result of a mediocre politician looking to score some quick political points. It was probably better that way. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 854 Humans Are Weird Chain Reaction Written by Betty Adams Why do you want the educational background of every human on the evening shift? The base commander asked as he squinted down the stiff employee in front of his perch. The Trisk shifted his many, ah, too many legs in what the base commander took to be a gesture of unease. I want to ascertain if I can... uh, the Trisk said as he reached up nervously with his gripping leg to brush the sensory bristles over his primary eyes. May these humans fall on the spectrum of intelligence. They are not rated as a psychologist, the base commander said, flaring his wings out in a cautious warning. And this base does not have the capacity to contact any university extension capable of granting approval for research on sapient species. I do not want active research, the Trisk quickly protested. I do not even want to make further passive observations. I just want to answer a question that was raised by observing what I assume was a recreational behavior amongst the field workers of the night shift. The base commander considered this carefully. Even allowing the passive research on sapient species could raise tensions on a small base like this. However, humans were notoriously curious and willing to be studied. On the other flap, they usually insisted on being able to study whoever was studying them in turn, and that could lead down a very disruptive wind gusts. He ran his winghook over his sensory horns and nodded slowly as he pondered. I will have to discuss this with third cousin, he said. If we decide in your favor, she will send you the files this afternoon. The Drisk nodded and skittered quickly out the room. It was a fairly simple matter to contact third cousin and get her to agree to the meeting. But the meeting had to be delayed as she was quite busy in the medical bay. The base commander pulled up the medical records and blinked in surprise. It seemed that roughly half the human population of the base was currently slated for minor medical attention. 
The symptoms showed a fascinating range of minor burns to bruises to one dislocated shoulder joint. The base commander winced and rolled his shoulder joints in sympathy. This was perplexing, but hardly out of character for what he had been taught to expect from humans. He turned back to examining the surge in power requirements that they had experienced since expanding their research fields. In due time, Third Cousin sent him a terse approval, which he passed on to Trisk. He didn't quite forget the issue, but when the Trisk skittered into his office the next day with a gloomy set of joints, the base commander didn't immediately ping why he was back. Can I serve you? the base commander asked. The Trisk brushed his eyes hairs back and flexed in frustration. Thank you for obtaining the information for me, the Trisk said. The base commander remembered to pause for six slow wing beats before responding. You are welcome, he replied. The Trisk bobbed his body in acknowledgement of a reply, but didn't go. The base commander wondered what the Trisk could want. That he wanted something more was clear. Did you answer your question? The base commander asked. Not in the least, the Trisk said with a glum set of his joints. I only intensified my questions. Would you like to tell me about your questions? The base commander asked, hoping the Trisk had no such intentions. However, the Trisk perked up in relief and began circling slowly as he processed his thoughts. The base commander tried to subtly settle more comfortably on his perch. It was going to be a long explanation. I was out scouting outside of the fenced areas for the best places to set insect traps, the Trisk said. I was accompanied by one of the morning shift human crew leads for protection. We found many good sites, but wanted to get some more as there was more time left in the day. I'm afraid that we went past our working hours for the day, but our scouting was so successful. We were headed back and found a group of evening shift humans wrapping up their work hours. They had been modulating the energy flow on the fencing and appeared to be gathering up the scattered insulated components. The Trisk paused and gave a sudden shudder, brushed his paws all over his body in a gesture that the members of the species usually use to assess their bodies after an injury. One human was holding what I assumed was a cold wire, but as we got closer, I felt on my electro bristles that it was twitching. The Trisk went on. The base commander was trying to keep the Trisk colloquialism in mind while the other talked. I expressed my concern, but my human escort pointed out that the humans could not conduct the charge as the feet were insulated, the Trisk said. But then a second human set down a pad of insulation and grabbed the first human's hand. Then a third did the same. Then each of the shift placed the insulation down and stepped on it, forming a chain of human hands. A massive shudder ran through the Trisk's body as he recalled the next part. The final human put down his insulation and took the hand of the human next to him. The Trisk finally forced himself to go on. The base commander found himself oddly fascinated now. Something horrible was clearly coming, and he couldn't look away. The human who was with me had stopped walking, and was watching them with his body poised as if he was expecting entertainment. The Trisk went on. The line of humans was focused on the last human in the line. They were encouraging him to do something. Finally, the last human in the line took off his foot covering and stepped off the insulated pad. But then the current would have had a circuit and we would have... Uh, the base commander couldn't help interjecting. 
The Trisk stiffened in her front, and the base commander's shock interrupted him. It shocked every human in the line, sending them all flying from the force of the electrocution. The Trisk clicked out. My escort was laughing, and once they recovered from the automatic paint display, the rest of the humans were laughing as well. The Trisk stopped talking, and the base commander stared at him in mild horror. What was their average educational level? The base commander finally asked. Not one of them had less than a tertiary degree accredited to them from a home university, the Trisk replied. Why? The base commander suddenly burst out. I don't know, said the Trisk grimly, and now I'm even without a theory. End of chapter. Story number two. They stole fire twice, written by the Lords of Duke. When a planet needs pacification, it is a necessity to rob it of its ability to defend itself and thus present a hazard for the occupational forces. All that takes is often a few tweaks to a couple orbiting satellites and aiming their projectors to the surface. Most of the pacification systems consist of countermeasures to ignition points for fusion and fission and, from time to time, electromagnetic pulse generation. When you take the world back several centuries or more in technology, the infrastructure tends to lose cohesion, often permanently, and any form of help being offered, regardless of the cost, is accepted, and a world is thus enslaved for pennies on the dollar. Unfortunately, this technique requires a few elements to be in play. The planet must be a single world, meaning they have no off-world settlements. The world must not have any standing platform in orbit around it. The planet must be compliant by nature when confronted with exceptional challenges. We managed to score two out of three in those circumstances. The third is like a knife poised above our heads and we wait its descent. We'd read about the humans and the literature without fail described them as a deeply problematic survivalists to the extreme. Their death world was more a playground than their actual demises. They had settlements and regions other species would have declared no-fly, zero-contact areas without any attempt at rehabilitating them. Their food is classified as a biohazard in dozens of worlds, universally condemned for mass consumption by most others, and in a few cases, weaponized for deployment in the field. Three dishes qualify as narcotics and are heavily scrutinized of off-world production. In short, we knew it would be a problem, and we signed off on it immediately. To fail in providing for our client, it would be unfathomable, honestly. Every world we pacified, it was money in the bank and a feather in our cap to say nothing to stroke our egos. Eight billion plus change versus a system that had a 100% success rate, inclusive of over 19 Class G death worlds, while this one, only rated as simple class K. It was basic mathematics on our side, as well as the weight of a progressive technological adaptation, expansion, and renewal. Then we discovered the first of the cloth and wood-framed aircraft in a field after a routine sweep. A month later, an engine using a stripped stone hydrogen battery. Two weeks later, pressurized tanks of rocket propellant. The next night, noises on the exterior of Recon 4 Satellite 6. Five hours later, the disappearance of Recon 4 Satellites 1 through 8. And tonight, 
Now, this message for you, our former employer. The humans are offering a one-time deal, which I cannot stress enough that you take seriously and abide by, at your exceptional detriment. You tell them who hired you to cleanse their world of life, or they're going to kill your entire species inside of a Terran Prime standard month. With the snap delay between answer sinks, this message is 18 of their days old by the time it has been received. Consider what you'll do with those remaining 12 days. I suggest that you inform your citizenry that the humans are not the boogeymen of legend. They are coming to take what they feel that they are owed, and uh, bearing a gift for you. They'll be bringing you fire from their world. We did not fail. We simply switched employers. End transmission. Tales from Outer Space 855. Story number one. DM Bro. Written by Digital 332006. Chancellor Chiron of the Rydian Combat looked at the application laid out in front of him with disgust. A newer species to join the galactic community. Humanity had already applied to join through to the prestigious Mirai Task Force, the Inter-Species Peace Corps. There are a thousand years too soon. The Chancellor slammed one of his six appendages on the desk in anger. The audacity of the application turned the Chancellor's mood sour. Very well, if they want to apply, they have the right. However, we don't have to make it easy for them. The Chancellor grinned and pressed a button that contacted his secretary. Burrow, get me the Zantudian ambassador online. I have a proposal for him. Warehouse on Terror. Vadia handed his weapon to the human engineer with a bit of reluctance. The human handled it with great care, which made him loosen up a bit. The humans had accepted the Zendantian offer of a training match to prove their worth for the Mirai task force, but petitioned to change some of the parameters for safety's sake. The engineer's colleague came up and talked to Vedia while the others took to meet a long cylinder and brought it over to the table where the weight scale, micrometer, and other various measuring tools were laid out. All right. So, we'll copy this and get it to the same size and weight, but it'll fire paint projectiles instead. Now, we won't reverse engineer how this works because your government hasn't agreed to that. But what is the rate of fire for this weapon? The engineer asked, a bad in his hand and ready to take notes. It's called a plasma torch. I modified mine to shoot every 0.78 seconds. Manufacturer recommends a flat one-second spool up at a time, but it's only a 12% difference in power, and those 0.22 seconds make quite a difference. Plus, there's a burst auto mode that can fire four shots a second, but that's mostly for suppressing fire. Vadia smiled as he explained, proud of his ingenuity. He was a bit sundered that the humans forbade full automatic fire for the exercise but realized that they'd been too much at a disadvantage otherwise. Wait, are you sure? One shot every 0.78 seconds. The human engineer looked at him with a bit of confusion. Huh, it'll be just like the ambassador said. Very easy. To think that they can't comprehend shooting this quick. I'm certain 
Now how long will this be? Asked Vidya, his arms crossed. I want to say two days, but three days should be safe a bet, replied the engineer. Vidya nodded and went to look over the human team. Their weapons were much more compact than his, but thicker as well. The humans themselves were not very imposing. Half his height had only two arms and two legs to his four. A human made his way towards him, extending a hand. Sergeant Broden, said the human. Adjutant Vadia, he replied back. So we going up against your team, inquired Broden. Correct. I must say I admire your species bravery, trying out for the task ball so early. Who knows why our leaders want to join but be personally. I like a challenge. I look forward to a good match, Sergeant Broden. Please, just bro. It's what everyone calls me. Broden saluted and went back to his team. Three days later, Vidya checked his weapon and pulled down his night vision goggles. He and his team, five others, made their way inside the compound in the cover of darkness. The fact that this was just a training exercise did not help him calm his mind in any way. There was more pressure to perform well than if it had been a routine operation. The replica weapon in his hands felt just right, exactly the same weight as his normal one did. For the purpose of this training exercise, however, it had been replaced with one that shot out paint instead of plasma. Naturally, training exercises back home usually involve some form of laser or sophisticated systems of tracking how the shot would land, mimicking reality as closely as possible. For them, this was something new, but Vidya could see the ups and downs of using paint. It was much cheaper than the other systems, but somewhat less accurate. Vidya gathered around a small table with the rest of his team once they entered the compound. Made of some composite materials, the humans built a fake urban environment expressly for the purpose of training exercise. All right, listen up. We drew lots and ended up with the role of defender. This here, he pointed at a handheld digital device which displayed an overview of the area, is a compound we must protect. There are two entries, asked one of his squad members. Yes, we won't know which one they'll take, so we need to prepare for both scenarios. There are two ways we can win, if we defeat all the attackers or manage to defend for 15 minutes. One of the rules, inquired another member of the squad. Conventional weapons only, no explosives, vehicles, or anything else. So this will test accuracy, speed, and tactics. Troop numbers are equal, but fourth he's second in command. Yes, in order to be fair, members will be on equal six on both sides. Additionally, targets need to be fatally shot to be considered down. Human anatomy means that we need to hit them in the center of their mass or their head. The sniper pointed at a location on the map. Hmm, I like this position. Well, let me have an height advantage where I can see across most of the compound. Vidya nodded. I was also thinking that you could sit up there. Then we can have someone be here while another would be behind there. He said as he showed what he meant. So, uh, spread out so they have no safe locations and must put themselves into the line of fire in order to engage us at all. I like it added the second-in-command. It's the safest plan I can come up with. There's a lot we don't know about them yet. Lydia gave the signal and all went to the positions, having a few minutes to get familiar with the layout before the attack from the humans would begin. 
an alarm sounded, a single loud note indicating that the clock had started and the attack had begun. The humans started off quick, splitting into two teams of three in order to enter the compound from both entries. Quick, precise shots were let out at the general vicinity of the defenders as the humans got into defensive position, forcing them into a crouch. The plasma torches replied in kind not long after, plastering the battlefield in paint. The humans maintained their position and occasionally peeked out at a fired at the sniper, trying to catch him in the open. The firefight lasted a few good minutes, exchanging fire between the two teams quite liberally. Once the second human team managed to make some good ground, parts of the alien forces were outflanked and quickly succumbed. Vidya watched in horror as his team was cut down and found himself having no choice but to retreat deeper inside in order to try and funnel the attacks through a single entry to try and have a lost stand. Hearing footsteps close in, he positioned himself in the corner, aiming at the entry. The first movement that he had noticed, his fingers pressed quickly, splattering the human with paint. A confirmed kill. The other humans yelled at some words and then suddenly Vidya's position was peppered by hundreds of rounds, finding him plastered by paint. Stop! You forbade full automatic! shouted Vidya, shielding himself with his arms. That's not full auto, replied Broden calmly, stopping his firing. It's not, asked the confused Vidya. Broden advanced in the room and flicked the small metal lever on his weapon aiming the rifle at the wall. This is. A visible, continuous stream of circular paintballs ripped into the wall with a satisfying crunch, which was, however, drowned out by the mechanic brrrt emanating from the gun. Vidya looked in awe and nodded solemnly. Damn, bro. Okay. Broden slapped a fellow soldier on the back and walked him out of the training compound. Best two out of three, then. End of story. Story number two. Drake and Fermi, written by Eddie Eddie. Humanity, the universe's greatest explorers, the mightiest stellar empire, the unquestioned masters of all the universe. We stand atop a universe that answers to humanity. But it is lonely, far more so than a war, or even to be subjugated. We reached out to the stars as a young race. We called out to the void, and the void remained impassive. So we squared our shoulders and built. We forged empires and cities. We built stations and starships. We took command of our entire soda system. Then we called out to the void again, asking, where do we go next? Calling out for guidance on how to reach out to the other stars. The void was unmoved. So we took up our tools and built once more, crafting mighty arc ships and interstellar vessels to send people off into the distant void to build new systems. So we could have someone to talk to out there in the void. No one ever called home. In the meanwhile, we discovered how to go faster than light. So we built probes and drones Hurling to all edges of the galaxy, calling out to the void, screaming into the blackness of space that we were here. We 
were ready to step on the stage of the galaxy, and we wanted someone to talk to. The void didn't even blink back at us. We expanded. We took over neighboring systems. We waged war with ourselves sometimes. But we kept going, kept looking, claiming more and more of the galaxy. Each and every time we'd call out ahead of ourselves, letting whoever was there know we were coming. Sometimes we'd get a response, a welcome back we'd been waiting, and each time we'd be excited. Each time it'd be one of the Ark ship's automated response systems. Silent, frozen graves lost in space, greeting the creators as if they had something new to share. They never did. We mastered our own galaxy, claimed every star and planet, so we looked outwards, sending more probes and more drones out, faster and further to galaxies next to our own. We felt supreme, we ruled the galaxy. And yet, we were alone. We hoped that it was just a fluke, and we'd find the galaxies next to our own to be thriving. But we were wrong. Once again, we screamed into the void, only to hear nothing back. So those galaxies we went, and to the next, and the next after that. Onwards, and onwards until humanity could see the very edge of the universe itself, still expanding from the Big Bang. Our species stretched from one edge of the universe to the next, in utter mastery of the entire universe, utterly alone. From the very center of the universe to any edge, humanity has dominion over everything. We rule this silent void. We rule alone. We are alone. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this weekly episode. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the channel, there are links in the description, as well as links to the original stories used with the author's permission. If you feel like it, head over there and show them some support if you enjoyed their stories. Anyways, I hope that you have a fantastic week, and I'll see you next week. Cheers.